What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. I am currently in an airport, so the audio might not be the clearest, but the audio for the episode's great, and the guest for this episode is Steve Cohen, star of Chamber Magic at the famous Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The show is actually closing here in a couple of days, and moving a block down to the New York Palace Hotel. Steve's excited about the show's move. Of course, he's a little disappointed that this historic site where the greats like Vernon and Cardini and Malini performed is closing, but he's excited to, to continue to perform down the street. In the episode, Steve shares a bunch of stories about performing for millionaires and even billionaires, about what it's like to perform this kind of show in this kind of atmosphere, and how to sort of bring people back in time and also bring them onto your side in a situation like this. It's really interesting. I'm going to let you get into it as soon as possible because this is a long episode. Steve let me see one of his final shows at the Waldorf when I was in New York, and I was fooled pretty badly by most of the effects. And I have to say, Think a Drink is probably one of the most magical things I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely amazing. If you get a chance to see his show at the New York Palace, absolutely do it. As always, follow us on all the social media channels, Instagram and Facebook, join the newsletter, give us a like and a share, share the episode, let people know what you think, let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. I appreciate the emails that everybody sends in. They make me feel very good about what I'm doing and excited about continuing to do it. Make sure to share the episodes. Like I said, I want regular people to listen to this as well as magicians. Let them know why it's important to you. If it is important to you, maybe that's presumptuous, but it's important to me. And I, I like to tell people about it that are interested in magic, that maybe are fans of magic, but aren't magicians themselves. I think it's important that those people have something that they can reference when they think about magicians who love the magic that they do. Anyway, like I said, get into Steve's episode. If you have a chance to go see a show, go do it. It's amazing. And enjoy. Okay, this is my big secret. Okay. This, these are the best undershirts. So this undershirt, I have no sweat in any of my clothes. I've just done four and a half hours worth of shows. Yeah. And my clothes, my suit, everything is no sweat. All right, what is it? It's the, this is the most incredible undershirts. This is the biggest secret of my show. Oh, I think I, I got like a Facebook. Yeah, they have um, like a, uh, a copper lining inside the underarm area. It's like a big, I feel it, it's very heavy. Oh, wow, yeah. It's, like, it's, it's almost like, like a diaper. Like, yeah, it's, like a, it's, well, it's not a diaper because it doesn't absorb anything, but it's oh. like a tarp Okay. underneath or inside the armpit. So, sure. so I'm jumping up and down. As you can see, it's a super high energy show. Yes. And nonstop just, you know, I'm going straight through for for six shows per weekend and all of my clothes i have all tailored clothes mm-hmm. they stay in pristine shape what's the it brand? never get was that so what's the brand um this it's uh e-j-i-s okay edgy e-j i don't know how you pronounce this but sure. it's it's um e-j-i-s and it's like this uh kind of like a modal or something like that type of uh material mm-hmm but then these, like the lining of these, keeps all of my clothes completely dry. So I never get, never get like you know, sloppy. Yeah. Which is when you're doing a lot of jumping up and down, like I do. Yes. That could happen. I, yes, I'm very. And also, because I'm, I'm also really into you know, into wearing nice clothes, and so 
I try to come out here and you don't want to, after having done multiple shows, look like a slob. Yeah. So, you know, you have to keep your, your shirt tucked in and there's little tricks and ways to do that. Mm-hmm. But um, this is like my newest edition where it's really helped and all of my clothing stays in really great shape. That's amazing. So, I, yes. Yeah. My big secret was to stop wearing antiperspirant and just wear deodorant. So antiperspirant clogs up your pores and so you just your body like sweats harder right right and so then that also like stains your clothing and all that stuff okay so gotcha I, I had to i stopped i just wear deodorant now instead of the antiperspirant which has the are you sure you're actually wearing it right now i am i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> i bought some before i came actually um yeah. great what's your other secret the other secret is so people often ask me like how do you keep your energy level high mm-hmm. because like I said this is my sixth show in three days yeah so I do one show on Thursday two shows on Friday three shows on Saturday and often I'll do a fourth show at midnight which I, is a show called miracles at midnight mm-hmm. um, tonight I'm not doing it because I'm doing this interview with you um, but um, this will be a miracles at midnight minus the magic <laughs> minus the miracles yeah um, but how do you keep your energy up that high to be able to give for performances that you know people come in here they don't care if you've done three shows prior they don't care if you're tired yeah you know, they're paying you know, a, a Broadway ticket price to see something extraordinary which they've heard about and they may have had to plan for months in advance so they really don't care what you're going through sure. so I have it's my responsibility to give them a great show mm-hmm. no matter you know what's you going on in my deliver. life and yeah so my big secret is I make a kale salad uh, every weekend. It's like a ritual for me. And um, I make this kale salad, and I don't know what it is, but it gives me this immense amount of energy. I never get tired. Wow. And, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's like steroids, but without any, you know, negative effect. Yeah. I'm just revved up. I'm always not hyperactive, but sure. as you can see, I mean, this is my third show of the day today, and I was, you know, completely energized all the yeah. way through. It's like literal sustenance. It sustains yeah. you throughout. It does. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. Um, I'd say it's not a sustenance as much as like a burst of energy. Mm-hmm. It gives me like a burst that lasts. It does sustain, but for like maybe like two hours or so. Mm-hmm. And so I eat it right before the evening shows. Sure. So after my matinee, mm-hmm. then I take a break for a couple hours and I eat my, my salad and then go right into the t- evening shows and I'm just revved up. I think there's something to that. My uh, my uh, my speech professor, professor in college used to say that when he was touring and giving talks like keynote speeches, he would eat a spinach salad right beforehand. And okay. I know spinach and kale are cousins, I think. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, yeah, it works for me. I mean, yeah. again, I don't like preach any you know uh, vegetarian diet or anything like that. But but I have the feeling that that it could help. Sure. So for me, it works. Are you a vegetarian? I was at one point. Okay. But I don't, not anymore. So um, that was purely for health reasons. In fact, when I was in London, I used to do the, I done this show in London, and um, I lost so much weight that one of the reviewers in, I forget which magazine it was, but it was a British uh, publication, said, this uh, young New Yorker looks like he's wearing his grandfather's suit. <laughs> I lost so much weight that my suit actually didn't fit me well. Sure. 
And, you know, British people can be very, uh, you know, detail-oriented when it comes to fashion, especially, you know, have Savile Row and everything close mm -hmm. by. And the people the people who come to my show are usually very savvy. Yeah, Savile Row. Yeah, they're, yeah exactly. They're, they're either tailors or they are more likely, you know, customers of, uh, of, the, of private tailors. So, Is that where the word savvy came from? Um, I don't know about that, but I know in Japanese, there's a this is a good, um, like, trivia point. There's a Japanese word, sebiro. Mm -hmm. And sebiro um, means um, sports jacket or blazer. Okay. But it comes from Savile Row. Okay. Okay. And um, so sabiro means like your jacket, but it also comes from the literal like um, transliteration of Savile Row. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Isn't that interesting? It really is, yeah. 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 So anyway... Um, you know, I like to to wear um, I like to wear clothes in this show that bring people back in time because you know, remember we have a dress code here, right? And it's very rare to have a dress code, even in modern theater. And if you go to Broadway, people are dressed up in casual clothes. In the summertime, you see people wearing shorts, and I just I find that kind of repulsive because it doesn't really give proper respect to the institution of theater. Yes. You know, theater with a capital T. And when I was creating this show, and I'll tell you more about, you know, how I created this show. Um, when I was creating this show, I wanted to bring some dignity to magic and make this an alternative to going to see the ballet or going to the opera. You know, something that would just be a real night out. Uh, I didn't ever think it would be like a date night. I just thought of it as being a sophisticated New York evening. Sure. And it takes a lot of guts to, as a performer, to put up your shingle and to say, I think I offer something which is worthy of your time and your entertainment budget, your yep. entertainment dollars, especially in a town like New York. Yes. Right? Because New York, you've got everything here. You've got Broadway shows. You've got off-Broadway shows. You've got concerts. Tough. You've got everything. You know, you've got alternative theater. Um, then you've got, you know, one-man shows. And you've got, you know, string quartets. I mean, there's every jazz clubs. So to say, I have something worthy of your entertainment dollars really takes it takes gumption in yeah. new york um but um you know over the course of the past 16 17 years i've gotten this to a spot where people are they're buying this at, no matter what the price is like you know i'm at my final three weeks now here at the waldorf astoria before this hotel closes and for people who are listening we're in the waldorf astoria right now um in my my showroom this is the um this is the Lyndon Johnson suite, and I've been I've done this show here in this room about four thousand eight hundred and fifty times. Holy cow! Which is pretty crazy. Yes. Um, over I'd say uh, hundreds of thousands of guests. I haven't counted the numbers, but it's it's up there. Maybe three, four hundred thousand, maybe five hundred thousand people over the years, including private shows here, and um, and so you know to start a show here. And I should say to finish the show here, people are now realizing that there's only a handful of seats left. So we're selling them at like $750 a ticket. And people are snapping them up because it's the, the last chance to see this. It's like yeah. a historic ending. But I got, I'm honored to have seen it. Well, I'm glad you were able to make it. Yeah, it was amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You bet, of course. Um, it's very, for me, it's always fun to have magicians in the audience because I know that you're thinking different thoughts than everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had every most of the magicians who I've grown up respecting have been here so for me it's a real honor like I look out and I see Copperfield sitting in the, in the front row or I see you know 
Teller and I see uh, Patrick Page and Darren Brown and like anyone who you could think of, you know, most guys have, have been here at some point. Um, and it's such an honor to, for me to look out and see people like, you know, Eugene Berger comes to see me and Jeff McBride has been here, you know, Siegfried from Siegfried and Roy has come and, and I'm looking out saying, I grew up watching you and then suddenly you're coming here to see this. Um, but I think I've created something relatively unique. Um, I had dinner in Las Vegas with um, Jason England, mm-hmm. super guy. And Jason uh, flattered me by saying that there are two people in the last hundred years who have um, revolutionized the art of parlor magic. He said, it's Ricky Jay and Steve Cohen. And I was really flattered to have him say that. But, yeah. you know, I've worked really hard at making this, like I said, an alternative to going to the ballet or going to the theater. This is now in New York a recognized venue. And I've had so many, I wouldn't say imitators, but there are quite a few magicians who have looked at this model, seen that I've done it really well and made it a successful business, and said, oh, I think I can do that too. And I've seen this in many cities. I've seen this in Europe, some Europeans. It's ironic that some Germans come here and Austrians come here, and they look at this and think, oh, that's a good idea. Um, and then they go back to their home country and not realizing that, in fact, I got the idea from a German or an Austrian, yeah. uh, from Hofsenzer, yeah. right? Because Hofsenzer, and I've been to Hofsenzer's um, salon, one of his salons oh, wow. in Vienna, Magic Christian took me on a great tour um, of, of uh, Vienna. And we went to Hofsenzer's grave. I saw his grave, which was like a pilgrimage for me. And um, also Kampar's Hermann was in the same uh, graveyard, same wow. cemetery. I uh, got a chance to see his grave as well. But going to um, going to you know, Hofsenzer's salon and looking and saying, this is it's a much smaller room than where we are here. Sure. Um, I would say you could fit 20, 30 people inside. So his venue was, you know, it was limited. But he was also charging, if you look at the, the pricing, if you do a retroactive price analysis of how much he was actually charging, it's equivalent to a Broadway show and a dinner in modern dollars. So he's, he was doing what I'm doing. You know, he's, he's charging real, real, you know, profes- yeah. professional grade prices mm-hmm. um, and and did it beautifully. So I can't remember how many years his salons ran because he moved it from place to place. Um, but I've been here for 16 years. I never intended to move. When I started the show, I'll, I'll tell you that in a second, I just thought I'd stay here forever because who would have thought that the Waldorf Astoria would go away? This is an institution <laughs> yeah. in New York, in the world. You know, like, you know, every United Nations delegate uh, stays here. All the, 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 the kings stay, you know, stay here. The royalty stays here. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done shows for the king of Saudi Arabia here in this room um, for many members of the royal family of Saudi. I've done a show for the, um, the queen of Morocco right upstairs from here. That's her room upstairs. Um, did a show for the... the um, the Prime Minister of Bahrain, like all these incredible people, because they all come here. You know, Richard Branson comes in. So I do a show. You know, it's 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 pretty amazing. Sure. But who would have thought that the Waldorf would close? You know, so I had planned to make this a 20-year run, maybe 25-year run. Mm -hmm. I got 16 years into my dream, and uh, this building was bought by a Chinese conglomerate, an Mm -hmm. insurance company uh, called Anbang Insurance. It's somewhat shady organization in that nobody really knows who owns it, who runs it, where the ties are into the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
CEO of the company, the chairman, um, is I think married to the granddaughter of Deng Xiaoping, uh, one of the you know leaders in the Chinese uh, uh, government. So you've got a lot of ties that are brought here. There's a lot of baggage, is what I'm trying to say. Sure. So this hotel, once that was bought by the Chinese, they announced that it was going to be closing down. Uh, they also announced that the, the United States State Department said that no longer will we keep our president or the United Nations ambassador in this building because they're afraid of cyber espionage. So this is, this is like where serious stuff is going down. Sure. Um, Jared Kushner and um, and the, the chairman of Anbang met right downstairs from here when they had their meeting um, recently. And then also, you know, Trump was right across the street. He was actually mm-hmm. over at the Intercontinental. Um, so, you know, this is a building where things happen. And you might have seen there was one of the um, large-scale dinners right before the presidential election. It's called the Alfred... No, it's not the Alfred... The, the Newman dinner. I forget. It's not the Alfred E. Newman. That's that's that's, that's, that's Mad Magazine. Uh, it was something Newman dinner. I'm drawing a blank right now. Anyway, they had their big uh, presentations on the ballroom stage, which I've I hang out there with my kids. Like my my daughter practices her ballet routines on that stage. Wow. Um, but that's where Trump and Bloomberg and Hillary Clinton and every leader that you can think of was all were all there. So like I said, this is a building you never thought would close, but mm-hmm. they're turning this into condos. Um, and I've had to figure out where my next step is. Sure. But I got really lucky because the moment that I announced uh, that I had to move, I got multiple offers from the best hotels in New York, mm-hmm. all the top hotels. I, I thought I was going to have to ha- have my hat in hand and hit the pavement and start knocking on doors, but it was exactly the opposite. I got calls from the literally the best hotels in town saying would you like to take a look at our space we're interested in having you move here for as your new home mm-hmm. and uh, the best offer and the best overall experience for my customers uh, is going to be where I signed a long-term contract with which is the New York Palace one block away from here so even if people come here by accident to the Waldorf they won't be able to get in but they'll have to walk right across the street sure and it's just a stunning room it's like going into Versailles and um, it's a real palace. I mean, like, you know, it, li- it lives up to its name. The building and the room that I'm going to be in was built in, the, it was completed in 1883. And it has original architecture, interior architecture. Walking in there, you just feel like you're stepping back in time. It's actually a grade up from this room. So this room is beautiful, right? I mean, look, sure. this is like a stunning parlor. Um, I'll be moving from a stunning parlor into a an even more, like an upgrade yeah. uh, into this just gorgeous, like a palace ballroom. But we'll keep the number of seats exactly the same. Sure. So is it about the same size as the room? The room is bigger. It'll be uh, wider, mm-hmm. a little bit deeper. But we're going to keep the number of chairs exactly the same. So that, you know, it'll be exactly the same experience sure. for, for my guests. The only difference being that there'll be a little more wiggle room or elbow room. Here is pretty tight. I mean, you're sitting right on top of your neighbor. Um, but there, we can have a little space between the chairs and people will be able to breathe a little better. So I'm really looking forward. And we start there exactly one week after I finish here. So in other words, the last show at the Waldorf Astoria, historic night for me, is the 25th of February, 2017. And I'll be starting at the Palace on March 3rd, 2017, exactly one week later. Um, The next weekend, no downtime. So there's momentum, right? I haven't lost any momentum. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems if you're starting any sort of a show is – 
once you've got some momentum, if you announce it's closing, then in people's minds, they automatically, they, there's like a, a trigger or a switch, say, oh, that's done. And I guess I either missed it or I caught it, but it's it's binary, you know, it's yes. either on or off. And, um, you know, that's a dangerous place to be if you're going to be continuing, because if people flip that switch and you're still there, they're like, oh, I didn't even realize it was still on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I didn't realize that movie was still playing, you know, because like, I can't believe it's still in the theaters. Yeah. I thought that was already, you know, it's like on demand. So, so for this, I decided early on, I'm not going to let anything stop this momentum because, you know, I sell a lot of tickets. I mean, on a daily basis, we're selling 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, more than sometimes over 100, 200 tickets daily mm-hmm. because the people want to buy the tickets way out in advance, five months out, six months out. And it typically is sold out six to eight weeks ahead of time. Um, and the idea is just to keep that momentum going because I don't have any advertising budget. It's all run entirely by word of mouth. And um, I've just been really fortunate to keep this whole thing running. Yeah. You know, all these years. It's amazing. And also be able to support my family. I've got two kids, 17 and four and 12. And they both go to private school here in Manhattan. Like, you know, you know, upscale um, elite private school. And, you know, of course, I'm like the oddball father in the, in the group where everyone else is hedge fund managers and lawyers and, you know, captains of industry. And I'm the magician, you know, in the room. Yeah. But, but I get along with all the guys and all the families. And it's, it's really quite amazing. Um, last year, I did a fundraiser event for the school. And um, there were probably about, I don't know, 600 people there or so. So we did it in shifts. Mm-hmm. They came, we didn't do it here, we did it at this other venue. And we did it in shifts. So people came in, I did a show, they left. People came in, did a show, and I left. It was like 20 minute spots. And um, the reactions were great. And I personally was able to bring in the largest amount of uh, donations they've ever had in a single night for this event, wow. which I think was around like $2.1 million just because people wanted to come and see me. And I did the show as a donation to the school. So that was a really a, a very a real blessing for everyone. It's really cool, yeah. yeah. It was nice. How do, you, how do you win over the the New York skeptic? Because, I mean, you make a joke about it in the show, as I did this show in L.A. last week. And, yeah. you know, you, you, like, address the... You kind of have to coach the audience into their reaction. There's so much coaching in this show. Yeah. I mean, you remember, when you have the luxury of having done thousands and thousands of shows, you can start to really tweak. And so I, I'm often thinking about what are they thinking? What's mm-hmm. the audience thinking? And I learned that from living in Japan. People are very aware of other people's thought. You know, you think about what is the other person thinking? I have to respond to that. You know, a lot of times in America, we just kind of go out and do our own thing. And then you, you, you slash and burn. And then afterwards, you kind of look and say, oh, what did I do? But in Japan, they think things out in advance. And they're really aware of people's um, possible reaction, possible outcomes. And then they, it takes a long time for Japanese people in general to make decisions, especially if you look at there's this great thing. Um, that occurs in Japanese off, uh, offices um, is called ringi, where you have a, a white paper with little boxes on it, white and black boxes, and every person in the office who has a decision-making power has to stamp their little red stamp with their name against their um, little box. Mm-hmm. So it goes first to Mr. Tanaka. He has to stamp his thing. Then it all goes over to Mr. Nakamura, and he goes there and stamps his thing. Then it goes over to Mr. Shimoda, and he has to stamp his stamp on there. And eventually it gets 
approved by everyone. But of course, by taking that extra time where everyone has to physically look at it, physically make a decision, and then there's evidence afterwards, it takes a long time to make decisions. But you know, I, I kind of learned that I've lived in Japan for a long time and learned that you know, if you think about what other people are thinking, then you can actually really present something which is uh, multi-layered. Mm-hmm. And this show has you know, so many layers. There's a lot a lot of thought into it. I didn't develop this myself. I developed it with my best friend, uh, Mark Levy. I don't know if you ever came across his name before, but he's it's familiar. He's the creative director of this show. He he co-wrote Magic for Dummies, um, the Dummies book. You know, mm-hmm. he co-wrote uh, Mac King's Tricks with Your Head. That's how I know his name. Uh, he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. He co-wrote with Joel Bauer. Um, how to Persuade People Who Don't Want to Be Persuaded, <laughs> which is a really fascinating book that uh, Mark wrote in Joel's voice, uh, which is pretty pretty intense. But um, so, so Mark has been my best friend, my greatest resource, my collaborator and script writer and everything. And he's How'd like, you guys meet? Well, I used to do trade shows and I didn't like it, but it was a, it was a, a way to make, you know, make a living sure. you know, when I was younger. I'm 46 now, but I probably did it in my 20s. And um, so I was working trade shows all over the world. So um, another buddy of mine, Scott Tokar, who's in in the West Coast, um, used to send me to clients where he he was already booked. So he would send me to Austria or to Amsterdam or to London or Paris or all over the US. And I ended up meeting Joel Bauer. Um, Joel... um, doesn't do trade show magic anymore, mentalism, but he was the king. When he was on the trade show floor, he had massive crowds. I mean, like, people were piling. It was, was like, you know, humanity just squished together. It was like... He's a magnet. Yeah, it it really was. He was like a a rare earth magnet, and everyone else was like, you know, these feral, you know... (laughs) like uh, little twigs that were being stuck to him. So he was just amazing. And one time he told Mark Levy that he thought that we would get along. I got a phone call out of the blue mm-hmm. from a guy saying, hi, this is Mark Levy. I, you know, My friend Joel Bauer said that we'd get along. And that was 17 years ago. And we've talked on the phone probably every single day since then. Wow. Yeah. For 17 years. Yeah. And he's funny. become like just such an incredible resource and just... You know he's uh, he's a magician, so he's published some of his tricks in Apocalypse. Harry Lorraine is one of my close friends. Um, he's published uh, some coin tricks in Richard Kaufman's Coin Magic. Mm-hmm. A really good um, penny prediction of a date. This in that uh, that book is really sensational. Um, so he's got some really clever ideas. He's not a technician. Okay. So I am I pride myself on my technique. There's not much in this show. I'm not doing hardcore slights. I do uh, some some card slights in the show, but there's no need to in this particular show. But I love all the intricacies of, of sleight of hand. And Mark doesn't perform sleight of hand. So we kind of complement each other that way. Mm-hmm. Where he's a great storyteller. And I had to learn that. I, I didn't know how to tell a good story. But as you can see, this show has about... 12, 13 tricks in it over the course of 90 minutes. And they're all very full fully constructed pieces with a beginning, middle, and an end, mm-hmm. and a transition to the next piece. So there's no downtime, and it just feels natural as the show progresses. So and we worked on all that. 
years ago. And then the show has evolved and evolved and evolved. And you know, I used to do a rising cards trick in, in this show, which uh, which I was taught by Bob Kohler, who's a great, great rising card routine. Um, I've taken out some. I used to do a book test in this show. Um, look, look, look behind That's, me. I've got a yeah. whole bookshelf as part of my parlor here. So you know, it's such a natural thing. Mm-hmm. And also, since Hofsenzer, one of my heroes, used to use a book test as his finale. He had something which is called The Word. It was a poetry book test where he had volumes of poet uh, poetry. And he would ask a spectator from the audience to just take out any volume, open it up, read a poem silently in their head, and he'd be able to recite the poem stanza that they had picked at random from his bookshelf. Wow. So I, I had a book test routine I was doing as a homage to Hofsenzer. But then th- this is what changed my mind. One time there was a lady who came to this show and she worked for Ferragamo Shoes, you know, the, the do, European yes. shoe designer. And so she said, I'm interested in booking you for a private event. Now, I don't do private events very much anymore because um, I'm doing 300 shows a year here, right? Yeah. But, but when I was doing gigs and I was working actually in gigs, I was eager to find jobs like that outside of the hotel because that was how I could feed my family. So anyway, I got this, this inquiry from a lady. She was the event planner for Ferragamo. She worked for the company. And she came in watching the show as a scout. Mm-hmm. And after the show was over, I said, hey, thanks so much for coming in here. I hope that you enjoyed it. She goes, yeah, it was good. Good show. I was like, oh, so do you think that we can uh, we can lock in that date? And she goes, no, I think I'm going to pass. And I said, well, I saw you clapping and enjoying the show. What, did I do something wrong? Or She goes, no, no, it's okay. I just, you know, I've seen some of these before. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She goes, oh, well, you know, there was a magician uh, downtown. I saw do the same thing with the books where you opened up a book and you guessed the word. And I- I've seen that before. Yeah. And that guy, he charges a lot less. So I think we're going to go with him. And so I, I was like, full stop Yeah. in my head. Like, what did she just say? Are you honestly telling me that you're making a decision based on price? And I didn't say this to her in as abrupt a way as I'm going to tell it to you. But yeah. If you work for Ferragamo, I did, I did say this to her in a kind of a calmer or more uh, genteel way, yeah. di- diplomatic way. Sure. I said, look, if you work for Ferragamo, you're selling high-end luxury shoes. I can go to Stride or, you know, some shoes, pay less shoes store and buy something that will cover my feet and I can walk down the street and they will not get my socks dirty. But... If you're telling me that I need to buy Ferragamo shoes because there's a lifestyle around it and there's a brand around it and there's other um, trappings that are attached to that brand, people feel good when they're with your brand. Mm-hmm. I hope you understand that that's what I bring to the table. Yeah. That you know I'm not going to be doing a rinky-dink show. Like you may have that guy may have done the same trick and he may be charging you a cheaper amount. But look at what I've created. Look at the joy that people have in their eyes. Yeah. Look at all the no ways and the impossible that people are shouting out. Mm-hmm. And look at the ladies who are clenching their fists to their chest in great tension, waiting for the finale. And then suddenly, oh, throwing their hands up in the air. Like, that's something you can't buy. Yeah. But I can provide that. Mm-hmm. And she just said, okay, you know, whatever. Okay, and then she's walked out. And I didn't, I didn't get that gig. But, you know, I think that I, I, I proved to myself that it's not just price. It's re- you're creating a whole environment or a whole world. Yeah, it's a cohesive like, experience. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in my case, you know, I had a, a really interesting way of um, of kind of describing this um, told to me by Jeff Bride. And Jeff said, you know, when, you, when people come to this show, they're walking through many frames. 
So when you're in the lobby downstairs of the Waldorf Astoria, you know, you come in through that private entrance, right? The revolving door private entrance. Yeah. That's the same entrance that the, you know, Secret Service uses to escort presidents and royalty in, into mm-hmm. the hotel. Um, so you're walking in through that first frame. Then you're waiting in this gorgeous lobby. And then the concierge leads you over to this gold elevator. And the wood on the walls of the elevator is the same wood that was used in the Titanic. Okay. Um, then you come upstairs and you're walking down this really long hallway with photographs of all the celebrities who have stayed here. And it's just gorgeous room. And by the time you walk in here, you've walked through four or five frames, like mental frames. Mm-hmm. And then when you walk and you sit down in this chair and you look at the program and it's like, oh my God, I've been waiting for this for weeks. And they had to get dressed up to come here. So they had, that first frame was in their own living room, I'm sorry, in their own bedroom where they had to get dressed and spruce up a little bit before coming here, picking out their nice outfits. Then by the time I walk out, they're already primed. Yeah. They're more than primed because this whole experience has been very closely curated. And um, so that's the world I've created. And and Jeff's made it really, he, he actually gave me this wonderful idea of saying, you're, they're walking through frames. You know, and that's a, a beautiful way of thinking about it. Sure. So. How do you, how do you do the, the coaching of the audience? Because even though they are primed for the magic and I just I you know I came in later I got or I arrived a little later yep um, and I was just listening to the people in the line oh I'm interested talking, in hearing listening. what I don't hear that what, what were yeah. you talking about well so you know we get into the elevator and it was actually the couple sitting the two couples sitting right behind me in the show okay uh, and the guys are, oh, is he going to make my wife disappear? And she's standing right there. And, you know, oh, like, boy. just just hack unoriginal, sure. stupid jokes. Right, right. You know? Well, that's, that's unfortunately, that's what people bring to the table, right? That's, yeah. they, they have their own view of what their experience of magic has been. Yes. Whether that is a magician at a bar mitzvah party or mm-hmm. a corporate event or maybe a table hopping magician at a, a restaurant that they visited or some sort of social gathering where someone casually did the magic. This is not a casual situation. This is a theatrical show, you yes. know? So like, they don't even have a chance to shout out, hey, make my wife disappear, because there's no time. I don't give them any time. Yeah. Like, there's, there's no, in my mind, there's no dead time in this whole show. Mm-hmm. And that's because I don't want people to feel that they can just chime in. Now, having said that, I love when unexpected things happen, because it gives me a chance to riff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got such a command of this show now, um, after having done it, 4,850 times uh, that, you know, I've got the luxury of just being able to go off script and and riff with people. And the the Q&A routine, like the billet routine that Mm -hmm. I do at the end, um, that's all improvisation. So every night it's different. And that's one of the reasons that that I decided to include the billet routine in the show is that the book test that I mentioned before became too easy for me. Mm Because if you're doing a book test, either whether it's with a gimmick book, some other of all book tests, or whether you're using, um, you know, a peak, it's always going to be the same type of outcome. And I, at one point, I had a almost like an out of body experience where I was doing the show in this room, and I looked out and I saw myself watching the show. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't really an out-of-body experience. I don't sure. believe in that. But I was able to kind of project myself into like an audience's perspective to watch the performance. And I realized 
I could be thinking about what I'm having for dinner right now. Mm-hmm. I could be thinking about what am I doing tomorrow with my kids. I, I was not mentally present. And that's really a dangerous spot to be in. Yeah. If you're doing a show in front of a lot of people who are giving you their energy, they're giving you their devotion, their time, and they made an effort to be here. If I'm not giving them everything back, then I'm cheating everyone. I'm cheating myself and I'm cheating them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, this is not, it's not entirely improvised, but there's a lot of improv that goes on. And sure. that was what, that would spark me or inspired me to want to do that in the show because I knew it would keep me interested and I knew that since it was near the end of the show I had something to look forward to Mm -hmm. so even if I could you know sometimes when you do an act you get tired or you know I've done this a thousand times so you know I don't even have to think about but I knew that at the end of the show there would be something which I could anticipate as being you know brand spanking new and that was what I you know had uh that was the reason I put that in the show. Now, the very first night that the Q and A act was in the show, yeah, um, I was nervous because of course. you know I've done a center tear, I've done a billet peak for one person one on one or small groups. You can reveal it in interesting ways. There's many different you know uh, unusual reveals, but when you're doing it with 50, 60 people, there there has to be like a um, an internal rhythm, like an infrastructure. That it keeps it, it keeps the interest level high, mm-hmm. and um, I was really nervous that it was I wouldn't be able to pull it off. And Mark Levy again said, "Steve, you've trained for this your entire life. You've done if you've done a, a billet peak for fifty people on fifty different occasions. Now you're doing it just all in one night. Yeah, right. So you've done you're, you're compressing down those fifty experiences into one show." He said, "I know you can do it." So anyway, the first night there was in the front row there were four older ladies, very prim and proper, mm-hmm. and the third row near the back because um, there's four rows in the, in the show in the third row there was a lady who looked a little bit off. I mean, she was wearing very high-heeled, long leather boots, and um, she had some serious makeup on, a little avant-garde. And um, when I was doing the Q&A routine, I looked at her and I said, Miss, I have the feeling that you have um, like a yin-yang lifestyle. Yeah. And she says, yeah, that, I say that's true. I said, well, I noticed you're wearing the leather boots. May I try to guess the brand? She goes, yes. And I said, is there any indication on there? And she says, no. I said, well, are those your favorite boots? She said, yes. I said, those are Prada. They're Prada boots. Your favorite brand is Prada. She goes, that's exactly right. I said, that's not it. You wear those boots during the evening, but you never wear them during the day. You usually wear tennis shoes. Is that right? And she goes, yes. See, now that's the interesting dichotomy is that you're wearing kind of like comfortable clothes earlier in the day and then more kind of restrictive clothes later in the day during the daytime you spend your days with children she goes yes that's right i'm a nanny and i said but nighttime you wear leather and i'm picking out some sort of like a cracking of a whip and she says yes by night i'm a professional dominatrix awesome <laughs> the entire audience went haywire. Yeah. And I had never experienced that in my life. Yeah. Like, you know, I've done the book test where people go, yes, I guess the word. Hey, yeah. you know, I'm thinking of the word lumberjack. Hey, I got the word lumberjack. You know, but there, that's not anywhere. Lumberjack does not beat dominatrix. Exactly, right? Yeah. Um, unless you're a lumberna- lumberjack dominatrix. That could be an interesting combination. Lumberjill? Lumber, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the... the um, the revelation I had, and by the way, those three prim and proper ladies at the front of the room—they all turned around with a grimace on their face, going "ooh." They, that was what really kept my, you know, it convinced me mm-hmm. that this must stay in the show. Yeah, because it's like 
a, a live wire. Yeah. You know, and, and you really, sometimes you've got extraordinary things. Sometimes you've got little, you know, minor revelations. But if you play your cards right and orchestrate that routine, um, you know, I sometimes peek or learn information of what people wrote down mm-hmm. earlier in that routine, but I have to save it for a, a grand finale. Sure. So you're kind of choreographing the entire act in fly. real time. Yeah. Which it takes an immense amount of concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make it look effortless is, is become, you know, something I'm proud of. The hardest part also is doing three shows back to back, two o'clock, seven o'clock, nine o'clock. Because sometimes you think, oh, I have some good information. But, oh, that was two that was two shows ago. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. you can't include something that people aren't there anymore. Yeah. What's interesting is that like for that routine in particular, it's not just the potential of it for uh, you know great revelations but the fact that the way that the way that your setup is worded people are writing things on the cards that mm-hmm. you know really are personal and intimate sure and so then when you know you say basically select 10 cards out to the person mm. but then when you say we're gonna do more you can feel everybody in the audience just kind of sit up a little straighter in their for chair. Sure, for sure. They feel that tension. They're like, oh, sure. I didn't think that I was going to be. That's right. That's and now right. my secret is going to be. Exactly. And I've had, you know, there was a lady who wrote down, I'm pregnant and nobody knows it yet. Yeah. And I revealed that. And um, people, she was there with her, her parents and they went, they rejoiced. Yeah. Right. So you never know what's going to happen. It could be something like that. Or there was a very funny thing. A guy wrote down, um, I drove a bull dozer into the Gulf of Mexico. That's like, awesome. you know, it's like, where, where did that come from, right? Yeah. Another person wrote down, like, I sat down naked in a steam room on another man's face. And I was like, you've got to clarify that, right? So he told us the whole story about how he had gone into the steam room, the towels hadn't come out from the the you know the dressing room area yet. So he just thought, oh, well, it's a thick, thickly steamed steam room, you know, completely fogged up. No one's gonna see. So he walks in there, and there was a guy laying down on the bench, you know, with his back on the bench, and no one could see. So he sat down right on this guy's face, and they got into a fist fight. Oh my God, that's right. So I mean, that's a great story, yeah. right? And those are the things that people are telling. So you know, Boris Wilde, you know, the um, the close a magician from Paris mm-hmm. Boris Wilde came here and um, he said you know Steve what you've done he's very clever he's, he's a really good good performer he said what you've done is you made this show all about the audience the show is entirely everything you do is about the audience so there's no showing off look at my skill look how great I am it's all about giving the audience the chance to feel that they, like you mentioned to sit up straight and say, maybe I'm going to be next. Mm-hmm. And so whether that's in the Think a Drink or whether when I have everyone gather around for the Malini uh, hat production uh, for the brick comes out of the hat. Um, I've got another story to tell you about that too. Uh, whether it's the um, the Himber linking ring routine that I do, uh, which I've done with up to five rings, by the way. I love doing it with five rings. And... Um, the the map routine, the Q and A, it is all the people are all involved, like thoroughly involved. Either they're having to stand up and move their bodies, you know, getting the entire back row to stand up and gather around. I see other magicians looking at me doing this and I see other magicians now in their promo photos gathering around an audience over their shoulders in a much similar fashion to what I've done here. Um because it works. I mean it's 
Mark Levy gave me the idea. He's because Mark, when again, was never a professional performer, but when he was doing his out of this world um, at parties and at various events, he would say, "Hey, everyone!" I went, and he's like a great talker, so he would say, "Everyone, gather around. You, you, you can't see a thing. I want you to stand over my shoulder. You, especially you in the back. Yes, this guy in the in the red tie, stand over here. I want you to be right next to me, so we can squeeze. I want you to look over my shoulder." And so he would get everyone around. Yeah, and. Mark said, "Look, when you're doing your show, this is not tiered seating. This is not the close-up room, the close-up gallery at uh, in the castle. This is not the parlor in the castle, which has great seating. It's great, great view, viewing. Um, everyone's level. So the only way you could possibly do anything on the tabletop, and I do two tricks on the tabletop, um, you need to have the people standing for those two. And fortunately, and when Teller was here, he picked up on this. Um, Teller told me, by the way, that he was fooled with about half of this show, which for a guy who runs a show, fool us. You know, I was really very flattered when he said yeah. that. Um, so Teller picked up that when you have people standing, you've also forced the angle of their viewing. Mm-hmm. So it's like the angle of incidence, right? They're able to see it now from the exact angles that I need them to. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're sitting down at a lower point, if you're loading something into a hat, I've done it before where you had a camera below and you can see someone just stuffing something inside there, which yeah. is no fun. John Carney had that problem when he was on The Letterman Show. John's one of my favorite magicians. He's so talented and he's just great. Um, you know, one of the one of the all-time great sleight of hand magicians, I think. And when when um, when Carney was on Letterman, um, the same week that I was, unfortunately the camera caught some of the loads because, you know, the, the camera doesn't blink, as we know. Yeah. And um, I was, I saw that. I, I watched his, his spot and I went into my spot with that knowledge, I was armed with that knowledge, and I spoke to the director, and I said, look, I do not want you using that camera over my head. I do not want you to use this camera on the side. When I'm doing it, you have to be using this camera, that camera, or that camera, that's it. And so he's like, well, why? And I said, well, you didn't see the spot with, with you know, Magician a couple of nights ago, John Carney? He goes, no, we didn't even, we didn't know, that's, that's, it looked fine to us. Right? But as a magician, you see these massive loads you know, yeah. being loaded into the hat or into the glass, and it's very unsettling. Um, I was fortunate to be able to use that as uh, some kind of ammunition, getting there a little early and finding out how to how to orchestrate all of that. Yeah, the blueprint. Yeah, um, but anyways, the same thing with this. You know, when I do the brick from the hat here, it's it, people are all looking down from the correct angles, which mm-hmm. is quite nice. Now, here's the story I wanted to tell you. I have become friends with people in this hotel, the Waldorf Astoria, everyone from the top executive offices, general manager, executive directors, all the way on down to the guys who sweep and the guys who uh, check you in, uh, the bellmen, the door bellhops, um, everyone in between. And there's a lot of people here, but that's part of my business. Right? My part of my business is to make sure that everyone understands that there's a magic show here, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, that they're going to support it. And number three, I give them a, a gift. Every employee is allowed to come to the show as a comp. Mm-hmm. Plus one, they're allowed to come with a guest. So they already, many of them have seen this show. I became friends with the pastry chef of this hotel. The pastry... Nice. <laughs> oh yeah, he's awesome. He's just great. Um, and the pastry chef said, look, I, I may be able to help you. Because I told him about the Malini brick from the hat with the ice, the block of ice. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, you know, I would love to do that trick, but I don't have a place to make ice cubes that are that big or places to store them. He said, Steve, come with me. We go to their kitchen. The kitchen is the entire... St- 
floor of this hotel. It's the entire second floor of this hotel. Um, most hotels have a, or most restaurants even have a kitchen in the basement mm-hmm. in New York City. But the Waldorf was built on stilts. Okay, this was built above existing train lines, um, so they couldn't build the kitchen in the basement. They built it up above ground, and those stilts, by the way, are all shock absorbent. So when the trains go by, the Metro North trains, the building doesn't shake or rattle. Mm-hmm. So it's a you know st- stabilization. So anyway, the um, the kitchen has this uh, you know, an area for for. Um, for frozen foods, and, and he said, come with me. We walk into a frozen, or I should say a walk-in freezer. Mm-hmm. That's probably the size of this room, and this wow. is a big room, and this is you know a very large room. And things are just on the shelves, frozen. Yeah. Like you don't have to put, you know, a wrap or anything around it, it's just frozen. So you've got, you know, you've got frozen food, you've got frozen this. And there was an area where he said, we can make this the Steve Cohen wing. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? He goes, Come here. So they take this giant. He takes this giant tray, long metal tray. I guess they use it to make like brioche or something. And he fills it with water, puts it into the walk-in freezer, leaves it there. I come back later on. He says, "Look," dumps it out. We've got this giant block of ice that's probably about four feet long, mm-hmm. and the right size for a hat if it were divided up into slices. Sure. So he goes, okay, want to slice them up? I said, okay. So he takes a hot blade and slices it exactly the right size. So now I've got, you know, 10 uh, pieces of ice that are perfect to load into my head. Yeah. And so we'll leave these here whenever you want one. Just call down to the pastry kitchen. We'll wrap it up in a towel and we'll send it up to you. I said, okay. So for a long time, I was doing the Malini ice from the hat trick here in this show and it was great it was just great however the problem is at the spot that I do it in this show which is the third trick in there's still another hour to go so by the end of the show there's no evidence that it ever happened because the ice is already melted it's like in a big puddle of water in a bowl Uh you know so there's not much of a trick anymore Um, but it was really impressive for people because they're thinking how is where is this ice coming from and it happens, you know, after the show has already started. It's mm-hmm. not, not like the beginning, like the first trick, suddenly there's ice. It's later in the show. So yeah. it's impossible to think that there would be something just that could melt lying around someplace. That's really hidden. cool. That you got to do that trick. That's amazing. Yeah. What are some of the, I mean, obviously, uh, Robert Hedan and um, uh, uh, Hofsenser, what are some of the other influences for this show? Yeah, well, you know, Malini has been a really big influence for me. Uh-huh. He actually used to perform in the Waldorf Astoria. Wow. And um, the Waldorf Astoria was actually another location first. It was down near where the Empire State Building is right now. Um, they tore down the Waldorf and the Astoria Hotel, which were they had joined it for a brief time. And they, they tore down those buildings, relocated up here, and then they built the Empire State Building in that old spot. Oh, wow. Um, the owner of the Empire State Building has been to this show three times, which I think is pretty cool. Anyway... Um, so I've looked on Ask Alexander and, you know, Kalush has done incredible things with the um, Country Arts Research Center. I've been a supporter since day one. And I've, I found an interesting article that uh, Malini used to perform in the original Waldorf Story Hotel. Um, and in fact, he did the brick from the hat in that hotel and they took the brick or one of his bricks, and they put it into a display case in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria. And they had a glass, like a museum case around it with a small sign plate 
that said this is the brick that famous magician or world famous magician Max Malini produced from a hat and that was on display in the lobby like they have you know displays of fancy watches and various uh, you know jewelry design in the lobby here so I thought that's great I wonder if I can find that brick wouldn't it be awesome if I could actually do the Malini brick from the hat trick with Malini's brick? And unfortunately, it was lost to time. When they tore down the building, the brick, I'm sure, got lost in, sure. the, in the reconstruction. So it, it was a just wishful thinking. But wouldn't it be great to actually have that, Yeah, it would be amazing. Yeah. Now, I, now, I've collected over the years many pieces of memorabilia that Max Malini had either signed or owned. Um, I've been to Copperfield's collection in... Um, in Las Vegas, and he has Molini's shoes, and he's got Molini's uh, egg ba- bag, his actual egg bag, which is, think about it, that the first egg bag that uh, Molini used, Copperfield's got that, and I held that and played with it a little bit. Molini's um, wand and his cigar holder, these are all things that, that Copperfield has. He beat me in the auction. Um, I, I bid on, on many Molini items. I didn't bid, actually, I bid on the, there was a big auction today. Um, are you familiar with that, Potter and Potter auctions? I'm familiar with yeah, it. Norm, Norm Nielsen's uh, big poster collection had their second big showing today. And I think they sold, you know, a couple million dollars worth of posters, which is amazing. <laughs> um, but there was a Molini poster that I bid on and didn't, didn't win it. But... Molini's um, just been a great influence for me. I think that part of the draw is that he focused on performing for the elite, mm-hmm. but he himself was a gruff guy. He was not. He was not. He was not polished. He was not polished, but he didn't have any airs or pretension, or tr- he didn't try to be polished. And you know, what have I done here? I, did I grow up in upper class society? No, I started out this show. Um, as a very hungry artist, very hungry, like like not starving, but when my wife and I moved back here from Japan, I made as much in a year as I make in a night now. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really tough. It was a really tough life for me. And so, you know, I grew up as a child of two school teachers, um, not wealthy, but we grew up in, uh, I went to school in Chappaqua, New York, which is very ritzy, very upscale neighborhoods where the Clintons, right? Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton live now. And it's, it's a, you know, all of my friends were living in houses that were $2 million, $3 million, again, back in the eighties, these are yeah. you know, big mansions. And so I put up little flyers in my town when I was a high school student said magic show and it had those little tabs that you have to cut off with the telephone number because right? <laughs> there was no internet then right there was it was all done analog sure um you know our telephones back back when i was a boy were the rotary phones right so you don't even remember that probably uh how old are you 24 yeah so you, they probably they they're already obsolete right yeah uh, so that, my kids don't i lose. have seen them in museums of course in museums <laughs> exactly i'm not trying to outdate myself here but but you know that was how people would call. You had those little those little tags. You know, you put it up in the pizza shop, or put it up in the grocery store. You know, magic show, magic for all occasions, and and people would call me up on the on my home phone, and I would get invited to perform magic, at these two million dollar mansions and three million dollar homes that were really nice. And and since I was already going to school with their kids, I got a handle of what it was like to perform for wealthy people. Sure, and. Um, and in fact, it became kind of very Darwinian. It was like survival of the fittest. Like if I wanted to keep getting hired, I had to really fit in. So you probably heard the story about um, about Divernon getting hired back by uh, Francis Rockefeller King, his agent, mm-hmm. um, who hired him back because she said, "Well, you know how to use a fork and a knife," and that was 
a great story that uh, you know Vernon has told, and it was because it wasn't necessarily that he could use a fork and knife. He knew how to handle himself in high society. Yes, he knew how to dress the part, and no one dressed. If you look at pictures of Vernon, some of those classic photos, like in the Revolution, any of the photos, classic, he looked great all the time yeah, always. those suits like you don't find people I was talking with a good friend of mine do you ever meet my friend Jay Sabatino no I have not met him okay, my, I've got a friend named Jay who's uh, he works in, in fashion he has his own fashion line he's worked you know he works for J. Crew, but he's really super cool and he knows fashion like he's mm-hmm. an actual like fashion maven mm-hmm. um, wait a second I've emailed him before. Oh, he's that, great. That he's name awesome. was very familiar. Okay, yeah. Jay Sabatini. He's great. He, he, you know, he's he's really really smart. And, and we've talked about how you know magicians don't get the idea. They don't. Current magicians don't understand about looking the part, and you don't have to necessarily dress so far above what people are wearing that people go, oh, well, look at him. He's looking so dandy. Mm-hmm. But looking so that you look distinct. You yes. look put together. And Vernon did that. Like, if you look at his tweed and the color combinations, and, you know, he just had it, it was all. sophisticated. It was all down. It was mm-hmm. very sophisticated. And it was also, um, it was just really well uh, color coordinated mm-hmm. and fabric coordinated. And, you know, you don't often see that. I, I my, my personal um, wardrobe is from Phineas Cole. Are you familiar with that brand I'm not Phineas Cole is um, it's a sub brand of Paul Stewart Paul Stewart okay. has stores around the country um, and I've become friends with the main designer there and so he takes good care of me he's matching the right fabrics and the right just so that when I mean if you look at any of the pictures I put up on Instagram or anything like, I really try to put an image out that's fully um, you know cohesive yes so you don't see me wearing a Sesame Street t-shirt you know I have a Sesame Street t-shirt but I don't sure. wear it in public yeah uh, I'll wear it to bed you know at night but but um, you know there's something about being put together and I think that you know Vernon did that in spades he was really I don't remember why we got into this this conversation but you know there's something just about um, keeping the level keeping the level of magic high by being a spokesperson you know if you're if you if I'm going out and now in New York I mean this is the biggest little town that I know you know I get stopped by people on the street literally every day mm-hmm. now, granted I've done the show here in New York for hundreds of thousands of people so yeah. I'm not saying I'm an A-list celebrity or sure. B-list celebrity or C-list celebrity but you know maybe I'm a D-list celebrity but people <laughs> still know you know when I'm going out the, the circles that I run in in the areas of New York that I go and people stop me daily yeah and I I'm very um, aware that people are looking at me, and sometimes they will stop me and say hello. Sometimes they won't, but they, you know, they'll remember. Oh, you that guy. You feel the eyes. Yeah, you can tell. You feel the eyes, or someone goes, "Oh, that's a magician." Mm-hmm. And for that reason alone, I think it's worth investing in great-looking clothes. So, if you look at my closet, um, which I would love to do, yeah, <laughs> uh, my closet is just filled with really nice suits, and it makes it easy. I don't have to make a decision. Yep. So you have to decide between wearing, you know, a sweater or like a, a, a polo shirt and, you know, three or four different suits. You're going to probably go for the easiest possible thing. I don't even own jeans. Yeah. Right. Because I don't want to be seen in jeans. So it's off brand. Yeah, exactly. So I've been really, you know, consistent. Now, if, to take this to a little different direction, um, Mark Levy and I have worked really hard on the idea of creating my brand. And the brand is the Millionaire's Magician. 
entertainment for exclusive events. Yeah, that was what we first launched, and I was really nervous. I was hesitant. I talked to my family about it. They all uh, tried to convince me that I should go in a different direction. Mark said you should make a business card that is, has your name, that is in gold embossed letters, gold foil, the millionaire's magician. And he said, look, you, this is this is your brand. And I said, Mark, yes, I do perform for millionaires. I perform for lots of millionaires and, and many billionaires now. I mean, I, my, the list of billionaires I perform for is, you know, probably about like 40 or 50 deep now. Mm -hmm. And so that's, he said, look, you're comfortable. You're, you can do this. Yeah. I said, but why would I want to put myself out there and make a ridicule of myself? You know, I might be losing some gigs yeah. by saying that. And he said, Steve, if you want to make, if you want to get the $20,000 show, you have to be able to turn down the $2,000 show. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll be turning down a lot of work then. He says, yes, you will. And I thought that's not a good idea because I have to feed my family. Mm -hmm. He said, well, it depends on how dedicated you are. How dedicated are you to this concept? And I said, well, I'm dedicated to making a living. I'm dedicated to make this show something special and unique in New York as a destination. And he said, you know, well, what does it hurt to try? And so um, I discarded the opinions of my wife and my parents and my children and and I made these business cards, made logos, made a website that had on there the Millionaire's Magician and no one said anything, no one laughed. Yeah. No one laughed at all. And I said to people, well, yeah, you know, if, if I were living in Kentucky, maybe I'd be called the, you know, the Farmer's Magician or I don't know, I mean, maybe wherever there's, you basically look and see where who are you performing for, who is your actual audience. Yeah. And my actual audience is a very wealthy, upscale, sophisticated crowd. Um, so it's really just descriptive more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think I read something like there's two million millionaires in New York in, in America. So there's a real market for that, right? Sure. No one's ever targeted the upscale magic market. Mm -hmm. So I thought, let me let me give this a try. I moved the show after having it done here for a while, I moved the show briefly to London, did the show at the Langham Hilton. And the reaction from the press was great. The reaction from the public was great. TV people went crazy. I was on this show called The Richard and Judy Show, which is like a very, it's like a, like the Regis Philbin type of show, the yeah. morning show. Yeah. They were, they loved it and everyone listens to them. So the, the main host says, you know, if you haven't bought tickets to this show right now, you're a big mistake. Get this guy's tickets before he moves back to New York. And so everyone was buying tickets to this guy who was the millionaire's magician without asking any questions. Yeah. And the shows were all sold out for three, three, four weeks. I come back from London and much in the same way that Houdini came back from Europe calling himself Europe's eclipsing sensation. That's what his posters said. Uh, I was a reverse import mm -hmm. and I had lots of press saying this is the millionaire's magician. It was legitimized and press reads press. Yeah. So the people in the media look to what, well, what other people are doing and that legitimizes it. So you're like, oh, well, there's this guy called the millionaire's magician and no one questioned it. So I, I just said, well, I'm going to keep running with this. Now, I don't emphasize the millionaire's magician anymore. Um, but the the Chamber Magic brand has become very strong for me. And this show has really taken off. So when I started the show, this is the story I, I've been leading up to. Um, I began the show in my friend's apartment. And the idea was I needed a showcase. 
because when people want to hire you for gigs, yeah. they don't know how good you are. So they say, okay, well, how much do you charge? And you just give them a figure. They go, well, how do we, that's pretty high. How, how do we know you're any good? I say, well, you have to pay me to find out, which is an incredible catch 22, right? Because mm-hmm. why would they want to spend money on an unknown property? And, yeah. and so I realized I needed to have some sort of a showcase. And uh, I talked to a buddy of mine named Steve Chiffo. Do you know Steve Chiffo? I met him this week. Oh, you did? Yeah, Steve's great. He's such a cool, great, smart actor, a really great magician, very, very uh, cool old friend. And Chiffo said, yeah, there's these really cool alternative clubs downtown where you can maybe do an open night, mic night. And I said, well, look, look at me. I'm so square. I'm not going to go to an open mic night. <laughs> at an alt club. Yeah, at an alternative club in like the East Village, you know, where there's spray paint. and all, you know. yeah. It just doesn't make sense for me. I wear, you know, I'm all put together here. Yeah. And so I realized I needed to find some place that matched me. Uh-huh. And I was walking down. I had been doing some reading recently at that time about Hofsenser. And I had a, a true unique, or should I, I should say a true eureka moment where I remember exactly the spot where I was. It was Broadway and 73rd Street, walking down the block. And I, this flash came to me saying, you must open a Hofsenser-like salon. And it was it was like a true eureka. And I thought, well, where do I go for that? And um, I went to my friend's house, a guy named Harvey Cohen. Harvey um, passed away, but he's it was a good card man, friends with David Blaine, friends with Harry Lorraine. And Harvey had always been a great supporter of mine. He said, Steve, I've got a nice living room. Why don't you come and do the show in my living room? And that's how he talked. And so his interior design was very Victorian. So you had Victorian sofas and Victorian uh, tables and, and, and the place looked like a salon, like you'd expect a Hofsenser-like salon to look. Mm-hmm. So I did the show in his house, charged like maybe 20, 30 bucks to people and did the show there for three weeks and sold out all the shows. And around the third show, uh, Harvey's wife, who I'm still friends with, said, look, Steve, you know, we love your show, but you can't keep on inviting strangers into our house. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, I get it. Thank you for being so supportive. You gave me an opportunity to try something new and, and put together a show that is experimental. Sure. But she said, look, you got to find someplace else. So I had a picture of the Hofsenser Salon that was just like a woodcut engraving. And it was from a magic magazine. And I carried that in my wallet. And I, anywhere I went, I would show it to people. I'd show it to my dry cleaner. I'd show it to people I met in different locations around the city. I'd show it to, you know, uh, you know, friends of my kids' parents and whatnot. So, so eventually, I stumbled across the National Arts Club in Gramercy Park. It's a beautiful club. Um, it's a townhouse. And they have members. It's a members-only event or a location where they have events, though, that are geared for people in the arts. Mm -hmm. So whether you're a a visual artist, whether you're a performing artist or a literary artist as a poet, um, they they welcome you with open arms. So I became friendly with the president of the club. He said, would you like to become a member? I'll sponsor you. I said, great, being sponsored by the president, you can't beat that. And I started the show there, and I did the show there for, I think it was like three months, three or possibly four months uh, in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. What did the show look like compared to the one now? Um, almost entirely different. Okay. I'll, I'll we'll, you, we'll get into the yeah, evolution. Yeah, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why. Yeah. But, um, so I started the show at the National Arts Club, and we, I think we charged a little bit more, I don't remember how much it was, $35 a ticket. And 
the National Arts Club had or has a membership base that they would mail out flyers to. Again, we're talking, you know, pre-internet, right? So they would send out every month a large, thick envelope mm-hmm. with postcards inserted that had all the information about upcoming events. And my postcard was stuck in there because they were supporting me. I did the show there and we sold out every show. And I said, wow, I've got some momentum here. People are buying tickets. They never heard of me before, but they're now telling their friends and we've got some momentum. Uh, CBS uh, local news came and covered the show on uh, local television. I started getting some media coverage and everything was going great until the president of the club, that one who sponsored me, said, look, you know, Steve, we closed for the summer. Everything shuts down because all of our members go to the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. I said, well, wait a minute. I, what about my show? He goes, well, you can try to start it up again in September if you want. I said, well, okay, but I want to do this now. I have momentum. Why are you putting the kibosh on this? Yeah. And he said, well, because the the entire club literally gets shut down. It becomes, uh, they do... You know, spick and span, cleaning top to bottom of the entire club during the summer when no one's there. So there's, it's literally locked. You can't. I tried to convince him to let me in just for my one event. He said, no, no can do. Um, so at the very last show that I did, it was Kismet. There was a lady there in the audience who later became my manager. Uh, her name is Holly, Holly Peppy. And Holly heard me have this conversation with the president. because it was It was at that last show. And she said, I overheard that you're looking for a new spot. I have some contacts at the Waldorf Astoria. Would you like to check it out? I said, the Waldorf Astoria? You mean the big hotel? She said, yeah, that might be great for you. And she became my biggest advocate. Mm-hmm. And we worked together. She just recently stopped working with me for health reasons. But um, she and I worked together for 15 years. Wow. And she helped me. <laughs> we would not be sitting here if it weren't for Holly Peppy. Um, she is... Um, incredibly well connected and she's also just a really good negotiator um and she had me as her only client oh wow and i took very good care of her sure as my she was like my biggest expense you know to have make sure that she was well compensated for this um however having said that how do you get people into the Waldorf Astoria to fill up even one show? So I was, she was trying to get some press. I was begging my friends and my friends were begging their friends to come along. And there's only so much reach that you have as a single person. Yeah. Like this is pre-internet, right? Um, people were begging their friends verbally, like, hey, I'll call you up. Hey, would you like to come see a magic show? Yeah, you have to pay for it. They're like, no, I don't want to see a magic show. I have to pay for it. But it's in a fancy hotel. People are like, okay, I guess. So we, it was very lean in the beginning. And mm-hmm. when I said I was starving, it was really bad. Um, I used to lie to my wife every night that we were breaking even. But in fact, we lost... I lost all of our savings, every penny. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think at the time I had around. Does she know now? She knows now. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm going to reveal it on your podcast, right? Uh, that would be huge. The big me. revolution, <laughs> big revolution, um, big blow off at the end. So yeah, she's of course she's very, very well aware yeah. of it now. But I, at the time I was lying to her weekly, saying yes, we're breaking even because I knew that I had the kernel of something beautiful. Yeah. And in my heart, I knew that the Hofzinger Salon concept was so perfect in its day why wouldn't it work in modern new york you know there are there is there is an audience for it at every level right so you know 
Hobson's entertained the upper classes. Robert Houdin entertained the upper classes. Um, Charles Bertram in England entertained the upper classes. There's there's an audience there, and I knew that if I just kept going with this, if I didn't give up, if I didn't throw in the towel too soon, it would catch fire. Then somehow along the way it would catch fire, and that I can keep this snowball rolling. And about a year and a half into it. I was ready to throw in the towel yeah. because I lost over $200,000 keeping this on the the hush-hush for my wife. But at one point, she was like, what's going on with you? I'm looking at her bank account. And she, she was kind of too trusting early on. But I said, honey, trust me. We're so close to getting to that tipping point. But I know I can taste it, but it's not there yet. And then about at the two-year mark, just at the critical moment, there was a lady who came here, and she was an editor-in-chief the editor-in-chief of a very early blog, doesn't exist anymore, this website's gone, um, called Daily Candy. Again, people who were alive or in, in, or in New York during that time, like you know, 15, 16 years ago would remember it, but no one knows it now. Yeah. And they used to send out a daily email blast to all of their followers, telling them what to do in New York. And most of them were, were women. Uh, the recipients of those emails were women. And they were going to, let's say a sample sale for fashion or maybe there's a new restaurant opening and so this website would send you an email blast telling you it was a tastemaker site it was exactly like that um, so their followers or their recipients were like zombies they mm-hmm. would do whatever the Daily Candy blog editor uh, suggested and when they put a, a, a brief article about me which is a two paragraph article very, yeah. very, very brief I was suddenly sold out for a year. Wow. Every every Friday for the next year. And doing three shows a night. At the time I was doing seven o'clock, nine o'clock, and midnight. Okay. Yeah. Every show was sold out. And suddenly I said to my wife, remember what I told you that if you just stick around long enough, something's gonna going to turn? It turned. Yeah. And then we started building momentum. And I realized, wait a minute, you know, people are buying a ticket for if it's February, they're buying it for next January. There's something wrong here. Like people shouldn't have to wait that long. Yeah. So I said, oh, well, what, I wonder if what would happen if I added Saturdays and did Fridays and Saturdays. So I tested that. And all the Saturday shows sold up closer, uh, closer in, in proximity. Mm-hmm. And then they were filling up, you know, months out. Then I got really lucky because CBS Sunday morning came to the show. Their um, editor, one of their editors came. And they said, we would like to do a, a eight-minute segment about you. National. Yeah. And they put this piece on the air. It aired, I think it was in, I want to say July or August. It was in the summertime. And What year is this? I don't remember. It's like maybe three or four years into the show. Okay. And within one day, we had sold $600,000 worth of tickets. Wow. And within a couple of days, over a million dollars worth of tickets. Yeah. So I said, okay, now I've got to start adding more shows because this is getting out of hand. I mean, I was looking at the numbers because I can see the back end of the ticket sales website. And I'm looking at the numbers and it was like a slot machine numbers just rolling around and around and around. Constantly, people just buying more and more tickets. And I was was blown away. Um, So then in November of that same year, they aired the same segment. And a repeat the same thing where suddenly like another million dollars of tickets were sold. And since this show has has, has started, now it was now sixteen years, um, this show has grossed 
between 20 and 22 million dollars since I started this mm-hmm. which for do for a guy who does card tricks you know I feel so blessed yeah I mean this is my literally my dream come true because when I came back to New York from living in Tokyo I remember standing um, in Midtown one time with my wife saying I'm gonna do a magic show in this town I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this town mine and I, I said that as a young 22 year old kid and years later sure enough now I'm sitting in the 35th floor of this you know grand hotel you know and have this this uh, you know this ongoing show so again I'm, I don't feel anything but grateful that it somehow just kind of came together, but it's just all really hard work. Yeah, you know, I get a, I get a lot of emails from people, magicians. They send me an email thinking that they're the first one uh, asking this question, saying, I, "I'm a magician and I live in XYZ town, mm-hmm. XYZ city, and XYZ country, and I've seen what you do in New York, and I want to do something same because I don't want to travel as much anymore, and I, I like the idea of having a show in my my backyard, you know, or not backyard, but my my you know sure. close to home, a residency, correct, and." I'd like to get advice from you about how to approach the hotel. How do you split the ticket prices with them? What's the uh, best way to say, what's the best way to approach them so they don't uh, shut you down too soon? And uh, please, you know, can you call me or email me uh, your advice? Mm -hmm. And I've gotten on a monthly basis, one, two, three inquiries like this every month for the past five, six years. And I'm not saying that it's overwhelming anymore. Uh, I'm not saying that I, I'm dis- disgusted or in any way, in any way, but there's no answer. Like, I don't have an answer except for the answer I just gave you, yeah. which is that I worked like a slave to make this concept work. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a pattern or a uh, a, a template yeah. that I could say, well, if you just follow these simple steps, you too can have a $20 million business. Sure. And if I did have that, then I want to make sure that that's part of my own uh, compensation. Mm-hmm. Why would I simply give you this package, you know, yeah. with all the details? You would franchise so, it. Correct. <laughs> so I've had many um, businessmen, because I, I, you know, get a chance to interact with some very smart and some wealthy um, folks. And they said, well, you know, you could franchise this if you chose to. Yeah. And I, my answer to it is, to them is, I probably will, but it will be at the end of my career when I'm ready to retire. Yeah. Because at that point, then I will create a, a full course of how I did this and what I did. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that can help speed up people's process if they choose to dedicate their life to this. And, you know, Bill Hurst, a good friend of mine, um, you know Bill Hurst? I, I know the yeah, name. Yeah, Bill, Bill is a sensational guy, like one of the great, great human beings. Like bar, forget about being a magician, one of the great human beings. Um, but he, we're fortunate to have him in in the world of magic. And um, Bill Hurst early on said, "Why would you want to do shows on a weekend? That's when you get your gigs. That's that's when we're working corporate gigs. That's when we're working private parties. You're working on a Friday and Saturday. Those are the night. Those are your prime nights. You're you're, you're going to cut off your you know your, your the hand that feeds you." And I said, "Bill, it's a different paradigm. I'm not trying to get gigs now. Yeah, I'm. I don't want this. Gigs. Is my gig? Yeah, yeah. So so you know, instead of me going to you, you're going to come to me." And that's an entirely different mindset. So, um, you know, I don't have a, an act which 
packs light travels you know big you know packs small plays big because I don't have to like I have a kitchen I've got uh, I've got a 4,000 square foot suite you know after you leave after my audience leaves for this room I take off my tuxedo I put on my pajamas and go to bed yeah that's the best commute in magic. Yeah. It may be in the show business. Um, the only person who's got a better, Matt King and I have talked about this. I think Matt King may have a better gig overall because he works in the afternoons in Vegas at Harris. <laughs> so he can go home and be with his family in the evenings. But aside from Matt, I think I have the best gig in magic because, again, like I said, after everyone leaves, take off my pajamas, take a shower or a bath, and go to bed here. Mm-hmm. And my family is not here tonight. I actually told them because... We have another apartment on the Upper West Side. I told them, because you're going to be here, it'd probably be best not to have the kids running around. and sure. But we stay here as a family often. And my kids have grown up here, and my kids have had their birthday parties in this very room. And, um, you know, this is really our home away from home. I stay here with the family Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's four days here and then on the Upper West Side during the week because it's closer to their schools. Wow. So it's, it's, it's a life, it's a life style that um, it's be hard to change. How I mean, what, how what are your what does your family think of it? I mean, I, uh, let's go to Japan first. How why why'd you go to Japan? How'd you get there? What was the reason? Um, so when I was seventeen, yeah, I entered and won the IBM International Brotherhood of Magicians um, close up magic competition. Mm-hmm. And one of the judges who was there um, was Shigeo Takagi, famous uh, close-up magician from Japan. And Takagi-san came to me after the show, after the, I won the, the award, and he said, you come Japan. His English was pretty rough. And, um, and then this is during the time when the bubble economy in Japan was, was still um, intact. And they had a lot of money. They were bringing magicians to Japan, the top magicians, to come and perform for their young magicians in other conventions, conferences, lectures, um, because they wanted to open, especially Takagi-sensei, wanted to bring the foreign magicians' ideology and thinking to the magicians of Japan, so they can see and open their their, 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 their expanses, so that they can learn more about you know how to perform magic. But um, I was fortunate to be at the very end of that bubble because the bubble economy actually burst a year after I went to Japan for the first time. Mm-hmm. So I was brought over as a um, as a guest performer and a lecturer at a convention in Tokyo. I was 18 years old. Wow. Okay, so my parents said, yes, you can go to Japan. <laughs> and I said, but it's all fully expenses paid, so trust me, I think you'll be, be in good shape. And Japanese people know how to really treat you right as a guest, as a visitor. So I did the show um, there, made some Japanese friends, and I inspi- that inspired me to want to learn Japanese. Mm-hmm. I love puzzles. Um, I love uh, crossword puzzles. I love all types of puzzles. And to me, the l- Japanese language seemed like the biggest puzzle I could ever try to crack because, you know, there's three different alphabets, and the, um, the phonetic alphabets are pretty simple. But the Chinese character-based alphabet, which is called kanji, um, you need to know around 2,000 of them in order to be able to pass uh, the government standard of uh, of literacy. Yeah. And so I said, I'm going to learn all 2,000. I just made a challenge to myself. And so I came back from Japan. I bought 
tons of textbooks. I had, you know, piles of textbooks. How to remember kanji, different kanji uh, combinations. F- there's something called jukugo, yomoji jukugo, which is where you have four kanji that get joined together to create um, uh, slogans or, or like sayings. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I'm going to master all that. I want to speak Japanese better than Japanese people. That never happened, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I got pretty good. So anyway, when I came back, I, I had graduated from high school. I went to college. I went to Cornell. Mm-hmm. And Cornell has a sensational foreign language, especially East Asian language department. So I took Japanese class, Japanese 101. And because I had just been in Japan, I aced it. Yeah, I, I truly aced the first year. And the teacher was looking at me and saying, yeah, you're pretty good. So then I took you know the second year, aced that. I started to study Japanese. I had a big poster on my wall of every Japanese kanji, uh-huh. all of them. And when I went to bed at night, I would go down the line one by one and say, got it, got it, got it. Don't know that one. Have to practice. Don't know that one. No. And for thousands of them. Mm-hmm. So it's like a real mental game. And um, anyway, for my junior year in college, I convinced my parents to let me go and study abroad as a junior year abroad. Um, as an exchange student, and I went to Waseda University, which is one of the best universities in Japan. It's, I would consider it maybe equivalent to, say, Yale mm-hmm. or Princeton, Harvard. It's in that range. Okay. Really sensational university. And um, while I was there, I, I was, of course, going to classes. I had a homestay family. I was mm-hmm. learning, you know, living as with this family, who I still stay in touch with. Full immersion? Full immersion. Great. Um, and then I got super lucky because Tone Onosaka, who runs a magic shop called Magic Land in Tokyo, mm-hmm. um, the best magic shop in Japan, invited me through Max Maven's introduction to work there as a part-time job three days a week. Wow. And that was what pushed it over the top for me because now I was not teaching English like some of my, my uh, fellow students were. I was in a Japanese-only environment, full immersion, mm-hmm. and doing magic, which is what I loved, and helping them sell their, their cool props because they make their own homemade props. And, and I was answering phone calls and selling things and making change and delivering things, taking orders, all in Japanese. Mm-hmm. And also, those guys are kind of rough and tumble. So I was learning slang and bad words and you know, in Japanese. So there's things you can't learn unless you're actually in the trenches. Sure. So that by the time I came back from that one year abroad, um, and I had done some hitchhiking around Japan. That was great. You know, going to the hinterlands and into the sticks, um, meeting all types of people. When I came back to Cornell for my senior year, I was taking Japanese class again, but now it was the highest level that they offered, which is Japanese debate class. Oh, wow. So I was doing really high-level thinking, mm-hmm. and Japanese was the medium in which I was doing that thinking. But it was really a challenging class because it was debates. It wasn't, sure. it wasn't simply like, you know, I have a pen. This is it wasn't a, vocabulary. This is, this is a book. It's, it's more about actual exchange of ideas yeah. and convincing the other members of the class. And by the way, the Japanese 101 class had probably about 150 students. Uh, the Japanese 50 whatever class I took, the debate class, had three. So, oh, yeah. you know, there's an attrition rate that, you know, there's very few students that ever take it that far, but I was one of them. Um, when I was a senior in college uh, at Cornell, my wife, my now wife, was a grad student there. She's Japanese. Yeah. We had a mutual friend. Um, I actually was trying to date her mutual, that mutual friend. And my wife, now wife, it was kind of like my confidant. But as it turns out, the other girl wasn't even interested in me. But this confidant, my wife, became really close. Yeah. And we eventually got married. So um, we got married in Japan. 
I lived there for after she finished her master's thesis, and I finished my um, my undergrad work because she was she's older than me. Um, we moved back to Japan together, and got married in Japan. I got a spouse visa, which means I was able to live and work there. And um, I worked in the beginning as an English teacher, which I absolutely hated, because that's like the default gaijin job. Gaijin meaning foreigner, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's not I, in my mind, it's not what I had come to Japan for. Yeah. I never wanted to be an English teacher, but it was a way to make money. And guess what? I made a lot of money. It was a really lucrative um, position because. Was that the savings you built up to start the show when you came back? Yes, absolutely. Which the money which I later lost. Yeah. All the money I later lost. It was an investment. It was you an investment in my time. It just <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I mean, looking back now, yeah, these were all risks that I took, sure, and I think that course. you have to take risks. You know, it's, you don't take risks for risks' sake. You have a, if you have a, an end game in mind, mm-hmm. you know, it's you're all you're playing up to that end game, and so you're, of course you're going to have twists and turns. It's like the hero's journey, right? And yes. you think like you know, eventually you're going to get to that uh, that final. That final, uh, you, you know, you gotta peak. go out into the woods. Exactly, you're gonna, We're get to, gonna you're get, go out into the woods, and you will reach that peak. But you're gonna have stumbling, a lot of stumbling. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I kind of lived it. Yeah. So, so in any case, along the way, mm-hmm. when I was at uh, doing some English teaching in Japan, I started doing some translation work. Um, patent translation okay these are documents that were very very technical mm-hmm. um, inkjet printer uh, specifications uh, the patents for those and translating those into English because there's something called a back translation a lot of times what will happen is you'll translate something into a language and, and then they'll translate it back with a different interpreter or translator to see if that first translation was done correctly. Yeah. So I would receive these translations from English into Japanese and then translate the Japanese back into English and then they would compare my document with the original text. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty good. My Japanese at the time especially was really hot. Um, so I was confident with my end of it. I couldn't, I wasn't involved with the comparisons of the two English documents, but sure. I know that mine is very close, um, closely in parallel with, the, with what they provided me. Mm-hmm. So in any case, I was doing that for a little while in Japan. And then when I had a great break, one night I was at a party, um, which was from the Cornell Club. Remember, I was at a Cornell grad. And they have a, a very robust Cornell Club of Tokyo. And one of the better schools at Cornell, because this has divided up into seven colleges, one of the, the top schools is the um, the hospitality and hotel school, hotel management school. After the one that's in Switzerland, the the hotel school at Cornell is the best in the world. Oh, okay. Okay, so it really is very high end. The general manager of the Park Hyatt Tokyo uh, had graduated from the Cornell School of, of Hotel Administration mm-hmm. and was at that party. I happened to be doing some magic for this uh, little group, and he came over. He goes, "Hey, that's really good. Are you, you're a Cornellian." I said, "Yeah." He goes, "I have a, I have a place for you. I think I want. To, can you come up to my office this week, and I'll have a meeting?" Sure, why not? Did you ever see the movie um, Lost in Translation with Bill no. Murray? No. Okay, so in that movie, it, it's a popular film. It was made by. Um, I'm familiar with. It. I just haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. Um, uh, I think. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's daughter, I think. I remember who... who Sophia. Sophia Coppola. She was the director. And so, so in that film, they, they filmed much of, this, of the... Uh, much of the set was actually in my hotel, the Park Hyatt Tokyo. Um, 
it's a great venue. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the best hotels in Asia at the time, if not the best at the time. And David Udell, this, this general manager, said, look, I want you to come in and perform at our Sunday brunch, walking from table to table, entertaining people. I was like, okay, but in Japanese, right? He goes, yeah, you speak Japanese. I heard you doing your act in Japanese. I said, okay, so will I get paid? He says, of course. Why are you even asking me that? Of course, you're a professional. Yeah. So I got paid very, very well and got a chance to schmooze with the most incredible people who are coming into town. Um, Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, the Rolling Stones, all these guys stayed at that hotel and I performed for all of them. Yeah. Because they all came to the, it was the, one of the best brunches they had. And I used to do a lot of private parties for them also. I remember one time this guy put his hand down on the, on the table and he had this diamond ring. He was a, he was a jeweler. That was it was probably like a, like a thirty carat diamond. I mean, it's the, the type of crowd that I was running with then. Yeah, and that was the impetus, or that was like the uh, the kind of the the first chance I ever had of thinking, hey, I can do magic in a hotel. Now, granted, I didn't want to do table hopping, right? Sure. But that came to me as a venue, as a new venue that I'd never considered Consider, before. Yeah. And then along the way, because I didn't have much pride, but I did need to make money for my family, and you know, it was a young couple, um, I got invited to perform at another venue on Thursday nights in Tokyo. Again, performing for Japanese people, all in Japanese. And this was a beer hall in the Ginza, which is one of the really upscale areas of, of Tokyo. But it was a downstairs like basement floor Ginza, uh, it was called Ginza Lion. There's a brasserie uh, chain in Tokyo called the Lion Brasserie. And they had a very popular one in, in that town, in uh, that area. So I got booked to work there every Thursday night. And then on Sundays, I was working at the Park Hyatt. It couldn't have been more polar opposite because at the bottom level, um, even physically, because that was in the basement in the Park Hyatt, I was performing on the 52nd floor. <laughs> okay, so like really looking down on everyone else, sure, uh, which is pretty amazing. But in the Ginza Lion, everyone was drunk. They were coming there to have to blow off steam. Japanese businessmen, they go, they go over the top hard. every time. They, <laughs> because if you get drunk and if you say things or if you break things or if you bust someone's car window or whatever, they excuse it because you are drunk. It's, it's, it's like a complete, you know, hand, hands off. You can't touch this guy because he was drunk when it happened. Yeah. So people came to this Ginza Lion to really forget everything. To, well, you know, kind of drink away their their woes. Yeah. And, um, and so I went around, did my regular set, exactly the same material that I was performing up in the 52nd floor of the Park Hyatt. And the reaction I got were lousy. Because I was just some guy at a bar. I mean, yeah. not a bar, but like a brasserie, you know. And granted, I was a foreign magician, so I looked like, you know, a foreign guy. Like, oh, he must be interesting. Why is he here? But it was all just a gag. It was like a, I was a punchline. And people say, hey, magician, come over here. Show us some tricks. You know, it, it was very demeaning. Yeah. Dance monkey. Correct. It, yes. was, it, was, it was really like that. And then two days later, I would go up to the... Uh, beautiful Park Hyatt Tokyo where everyone's wearing their finest Chanel suits and Ferragamo shoes and um, and sitting at this brunch where people were pay paying probably like around like $200 a person to be there for this gorgeous mm -hmm. meal and I would walk up to the tables and they would look at me and they'd respect what I was doing and they would react and it was very genteel but at the same time very endearing and they would ask for me for my card and I would get hired then for these super elite parties um, in Tokyo yeah. at places that most foreigners would probably never even get invited to and I thought wow 
the same material in a different venue has a different it creates a different reaction it's not the right context and exactly and you know who did a who wrote a great article about this it's Mike Close Michael yeah. Close I love Michael Close he's one of the great magicians in, in the world mm-hmm. and um, Michael he's actually the one who inspired me to learn a memorized deck because of the the, the um, routines he wrote up in his workers book series mm-hmm. and you know jazzing with a, with a memorized deck that was all so new to me when I read yeah. it from his books um, anyway so in one of his books, I think it was Workers 3 or Workers 4, he wrote an essay called Venue. And it was very similar to what I just uh, described, saying that the venue that people are watching you in is part of the entire picture of your magic. Yeah. So, you know, if you walked up to someone on the street and showed them a trick, it's different from them coming to a place like this here in the Waldorf. You could do the same trick, but you're going to have entirely different reactions. And um, the description that people will give will be much more vivid when they care. They actually care because the environment makes them want to care. And they're invested in it for so many other reasons. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things I I like about it is, you know, doing the show here and also because we have a dress code is that, you know, people start thinking about this weeks in advance. What am I going to wear? Like I had this couple that came to the show last night. The guy was dressed in perfect tuxedo that looks fantastic and the woman was dressed like in a gown that you'd wear to a um, an awards show if you were in Hollywood they looked sensational and I've had a lot of models who come in here they look sensational they look you know they're ready for a photo shoot mm-hmm. I had a, a general I'm sorry an admiral from the from the Navy who came in here in full regalia all of his awards wow. epaulets everything it was awesome I had a woman who came here uh, a Japanese woman and she was wearing a beautiful silk kimono you know, completely hand sewn, beautiful, wow. you know, embroidery, and I'm thinking, you know, that's what, that's that's you embodied my dream right there. Yeah. But the fact of you getting dressed up and caring about coming to a magic show, you've done it. Thank yes. you. Yeah. And and that's why I thank people during the show. Now tonight we had an odd couple of people that were not dressed correctly. Yeah. Very rare. You saw something very rare. Sure. And at one point, I remember early on, I. I used to have a little bit more of a, a, not a temper, but I had a little bit more of an edge. Mm-hmm. Now I, I really want to have fun with people. Sure. But I had a bit of an edge, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And I remember one time a fellow came to this show. He was wearing tracksuit top, tracksuit bottom. We, in America, we call those sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Yeah. Now, granted, they were probably Dolce and Gabbana. Sure. Very nicely fit sweatshirt and sweatpants. But he was not dressed correctly. Yeah. And I called him out on it during the show. I said, you, sir, um, did you forget your jacket? He's like, bad mistake. Because once someone's here, they yeah. can't make a change. Yeah. Right? It's already, uh, it's far too late for that. And by calling attention to it, you're only making yourself look bad. Right? Because now I'm putting him on the spot and I'm the one who made this customer yeah. uncomfortable. You let him in. Now it's your fault. Right? Exactly. And then, you know, we had an idea once, okay, well, people, are, if they're dressed incorrectly, we have to see them in the back. Yeah. But then, wait a minute, what if they bought a front row seat? So I learned from that moment on. Oh, and by the way, after the show was over, he says, look, you can't be the fashion Nazi. Fat, you know, the, the Gestapo you know, fashion uh, cop. Because... You know, maybe I don't own a suit. Maybe, uh, you know, he says, I don't I don't like to wear suits. It turns out the guy was, you know, he was maybe not a billionaire, but he was worth a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah. And he just doesn't like to wear suits. He doesn't like how they feel around his neck, you know. Yeah. So that's his prerogative. I can't 
enforce a dress code. Yes, you can. You can re you can request it. Yes, you can. Now, well, at the Magic Castle, they do, and you could have, for example, you know, a suit rack where people can wear borrow a jacket, like in. Um, I wouldn't even. I just this is me, just personally, just being that guy. Like fuck that guy. <laughs> that's like that's yeah, strong language. I know. Like, I get it. And that's what that's the chip I had on my shoulder at the time too. But then again, look. You know, I'm trying to run a, a. You're right. I'm running a very successful business here. Yes. If one person starts to make a fuss, yeah. Now we have the internet, right? Now we have TripAdvisor. You have Yelp. You have all these places where you know people can have a voice. Yeah. And if someone starts making a deal about how, you know, this this magician belittled me. Yeah. No, know, I of course absolutely. Right? Like I I don't want to be that that stern. So I wouldn't turn him into a mockery. I just would Right. So what, I, I personally would turn him away at the door. But yeah, I'm young and but, I don't have to worry about yeah, it. Well, yeah, you don't business. you're not in my shoes. Yeah. So you know, at the same time once they're here they can't change it. So I I thank everyone. Mhm. Mm as you remember, one of the things I say during the show is um, I have one guy up in front of me, and I always pick someone who's dressed really well, yeah. you know, someone who's dressed really, really nicely. And I'll say, thank you for getting dressed up tonight. You look terrific, um, wearing our, you know, following our dress code. In fact, you know, not many people travel to the th come to the theater anymore with uh, you know, proper dress. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to thank all of you for getting dressed up tonight. You look terrific, and it is very respectful. I should be applauding you. Mm -hmm. and, and when I say that, I actually do glance at the guy who might be incorrectly dressed and he was always like like this like oh crap I know I should have I should have gotten dressed up but you know again it's more to make everyone comfortable yes it's yeah. not for me it's not it's not they're not dressing up for the magician sure you know, one time a guy wrote me an email and he said he said I'm not going to a state dinner with the president why should I have to get dressed up for the magic show? And I, that's actually what inspired me to write a blog post about yeah. dress code. And it's still on my on my website, on my blog. And I was I have a pretty extensive blog of articles. Um, some of the articles that you might find interesting were they're called Magic Mentor Monday, mm -hmm. where every Monday I put out a new article about some mentor in magic that I, I find fascinating. Um, but anyway, going back to the dress code, I wrote this pretty long article about why you should get dressed up to come to the theater. And, sure. you know, I still subscribe to the fact that it's not about me feeling comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's about respecting the idea of the theater. Yeah. You know, this is an institution that we've kind of bastardized. I went to a, a really interesting talk. Um, I can't remember his name right now. He's the director, sorry, the, the president of Disney Theatrical. So they run Beauty and the Beast mm -hmm. and Cinderella on Broadway and, you know, all like the um, Lion King. And he said, we do the opposite. We, we want to make theater egalitarian. Everyone should be able to come to the theater dressed in whatever they want. And, you know, we are welcome to all. Yeah. Now, granted, it's Disney, so of course they want your dollar, sure. and um, and they want a lot of those dollars. So, the whole point of Disney is to turn one dollar into two, right? So, mm -hmm. so they are very, very keen on letting anybody in. But in this situation, you know, this is this is the high fruit to reach for. Yeah, you know, I want people to to feel like they have to make an effort to come here. Yeah, and so that's part of the whole package. It's an embodiment of a you know a time where people wore three piece suits casually or yep, you know yep, exactly. evening wear was daily wear for sure you know that's right and and I you know I, I love that and I love I love you know I love taking photos wearing you know, All right, those cool, are my favorite photos of yours thank you, like, yeah. you know, wearing cool outfits you know velvet blazers mm -hmm. and you know three piece suits and top hat and I, I mean for in a way it's kind of like playing dress up mm -hmm. but. 
what people may not realize is I dress like that all the time. So, yeah. you know, it, for the pictures, I may ramp it up or juice it up a little bit. Sure. Um, I don't walk around in a, with a cape and a cane everywhere in New York. Uh, but I remember one time I was walking down the street on Broadway. Um, it's like 20 years ago and Jeff McBride was walking down the street in the opposite direction and we know each other but we didn't know each other as well then and he had on that massive top hat that he has with like the eagle wings mm -hmm. I think that was the one but I remember he had this big black top hat you can see him from a mile away because he lives the 24-7 magician yep. mindset right he's he, you know you, you stop him anywhere and he'll pulls something out of his little pouches, you know, and start doing some some really cool and engaging and interactive magic with people. Um, but I saw him from a distance, and he lives the magician uh, archetype. Yeah. So I said, Jeff, and he's like, Steve, and we talked for a moment. And then I said, hey, I, I want to stay in touch with you. Can you give me your card? And, you know, he suddenly, like, he reaches over here, and he's like, flick, and he pulls out his business card, seemingly from nowhere, yeah. and handed it to me. And I thought, that's pretty cool. But that's not who I am. Yeah. You know, I am like the gentleman who walks around unassumingly. And yeah. if people recognize that I'm wearing John Lobb shoes or, you know, some, you know, you know, Phineas Cole suits or whatnot, that's, that's great. Because fashion people can pick up on that. Yeah. But I'm not, I don't have any pretense. Really you don't just, have anything to prove. I don't have, well, at this point, I don't really have anything to prove. Yeah. When I was when I was starting off, I I was eager to be that guy. Sure. But what's actually happened over the course of time is my vision of the character, the millionaire's magician, has become my reality. So this constructed character is now my reality. It's become my life. Well, my, that's literally fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, there's a book that I never read, but I just love the title. Um, in fact, I bet you that most people haven't read this book, but it's it, the, the title just embodies the whole theme of the book, which is do what you love, the money will come later, right? And that's yeah. exactly what I did. And it's just a matter of waiting for it. Yeah. And my, um, my manager, who I told you before, her name was Holly Peppy. Holly is, she's a genius. I mean, she really is brilliant. And she has so many adages that she'll just throw in at the right time because she's a poetry professor she used to be a poetry professor okay so she's an expert in edna st vincent malay are you familiar with i malay? am yeah. yeah so she is the literary heir to malay's estate what so, so wow she, yeah so she is talk about someone who can turn a phrase seriously she really knows how to write and she really knows how to, to express herself but one of the things that she told me early on was um you have to experience your your life in real time everyone wants their goal to come sooner yeah but you have to live it in and this is her her mantra to me in real time yeah and then the other slogan that she always um pushed on me was or not pushed but the slogan that she she um she reinforced was an african saying which is you can't push the river you have to let it flow yeah and that's a very buddhist way of thinking right it is right it resonates it, with me deeply right because you know, the river will continue to flow and this will never be the same water again yeah but it will continue to flow and if you just let it flow then you're you just in real time you'll get where you need to go yeah right and so that has been my uh you know the way I've lived my life that's mm -hmm. that's been the the directive that's helped me live my life and and take things in in good stride um, you know I I feel very fortunate I'm really fortunate to be where I am right now yeah um, 
but I'm also entering a brand new phase. You know, this is a really new, I, I never thought I'd have to say this, but I'm moving to some place which may even be better than this room. Yeah. It'll be a different setup because it's not a suite room like this, but the hotel has been so generous. They're giving me a suite room upstairs to sleep in. So after the show is over. You're going to have a longer commute. Yes, I, I have a longer commute. Yes, I have to go in an elevator uh, up, upstairs from the show, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate. But uh, it's still in the same building. Yeah, uh, I don't have to worry about weather. Sure. Um, and oh, by the way, speaking of weather, I never these shoes. Actually, these got a little bit scuffed up tonight. I, I, but these shoes have actually never touched soil or touched the, the pavement. I, this is one of my tips. I always wear. Look at this. I've had these for like seven years now. Holy cow! Right? Look they're, at this. They're, they're, they're basically brand new. Right. They're, they're the, 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 you know, maybe there's a couple of cracks in the leather, so you mm -hmm. could probably, um, I don't know, maybe the moisten that or. Uh, are those John Lobs? These are John Lobs, and um, those are phenomenal. And the reason that they're they're great. The reason that I, I keep them in good shape is because they never leave this exact room. Yeah. So they've only touched carpet and this wooden floor. Mm -hmm. They've never been on the pavement or on the gravel or on sand or anything and I think that's a smart tip for performers yes is to have a um, a wardrobe that you don't wear leaving your house to get to the gig get to the gig and then change before you walk in because if you're sitting in your car mm -hmm. in your suit yeah you know just you're gonna you're just asking for wrinkles and of course you could bring a steamer or whatever you want. but if you're traveling and you're already bringing your close-up kit or you're bringing your show kit or whatever you carry your, your equipment in, have a garment bag with your entire suit, pants, shirt, tie, uh, everything. Yep. And then a separate bag for your shoes. And when you get there, does it take extra work? Yes, but if you're going to look the part and be the, you know, the, the, the visage of what you you know, would you like to imagine do yeah. what you imagine? Then you have to sometimes take extra steps. Yeah. And I remember one time I read a great article um, by Tom Reese. Tom Reese has been to this show. Talk about pressure, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, one of the all-time great magicians in the history of our art, sitting there in the second row watching me, and I perform his finale um, in my show. Mm -hmm. And you know, he, he taught it to me, and he said to me afterwards, "I think you do it better than me," oh, wow. which was very flattering. But I had, you know, I was just very nervous to have him there. Um, and uh, I'm trying. Why did I, why did I bring that up? Um, Tamara's mentioned to you about wardrobe. Uh, no. Or we were talking about dressing, doing the extra work. Oh, that, that was it. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. All right. So, so Tom Rees uh, wrote a great article that was in Genie Magazine. And if you have access to Ask Alexander or to the Genie Magazine uh, website in geniemagazine.com, they have an archive where if you're a subscriber, you can go back and read every issue of Genie online, which I think is one of the all-time great resources. Um, there's a, a Juan Tom Rees issue where he talks about going the extra mile. And he said, if you can create a, a miracle, why wouldn't you not want to create a miracle? In other words, if you, if you have the ability to go that far, and if it takes extra steps to get there, then why not push yourself and do the extra work to allow that miracle to occur? Mm -hmm. Because there, it may be troublesome or toilsome for you, it may be something that requires an extra expense, but what if, for example, I think his example was, what if you can, what if you find out your client has a, you know, a fifteen hundred dollar fountain pen, mm -hmm. and you find out exactly what that pen is, and you say, okay, I'm going to go and buy an identical fifteen hundred dollar fountain pen. Yeah. So I have a duplicate of their 
what they assume to be irreplaceable or you know one of a kind item. Mm-hmm. And then you take that and you load it into a loaf of bread, and you have that bread on the counter in the kitchen in their house. And you go there to do a gig, and you make their pen vanish. Yep. Whether you use a holdout or a pull, whatever you want to do. But the pen vanishes, and you say, okay, I can make the pen reappear any place. And this is like Robert Houdin, mm-hmm. saying I can make it appear underneath the orange tree, right, you know, out in the yard. But you can say, okay, I'll, I'll, I can make the pen appear anywhere. I can make it appear uh, on top of the fireplace mantle. I can make the pen appear uh, underneath that lamp. Or even crazy, I can make it appear inside of a loaf of bread. What would you like me to do? Pick one of those three. Yeah. And of course, they're going to ask for the most difficult one, yeah. right, the loaf of bread. So then you go into the kitchen, and you say, here, pick a loaf of bread, and then you can do equivoque or whatever you like. They crack open the loaf of French bread, and inside there is their priceless, irreplaceable pen. Mm-hmm. And then you have the choice of either giving them back your pen, which you just bought, right? Yeah. Or you can then do a switch to give them back their original. Mm-hmm. So that is a true miracle. That's something that maybe Malini would have done. Sure. Um, I think Malini did actually do something like that with a, uh, a pocket watch that he had gotten from a duplicate made of either the Pope or another um, a Catholic religious official. So if you can go that far, Tom Reese posits, why wouldn't you not want to do that? Yeah. Right? Because you know that you can make an extraordinary memory. And if you rather would just do Twisting the Aces, you're never going to have the comparison. They're never going to talk about your twisting the aces routine. Yeah. But they will always remember, this is my priceless pen. It was inside of a loaf of bread. You know? Yeah. So so it's, it's going the extra effort. Sure. Making, making the extra effort. Going the extra mile. And that's just about, you know, again, it, you know, there's a there's a goal, right? You got to mm-hmm. know what you're trying to accomplish. And it's about creating the cohesive context. And then, you know, if, if you are going to be wearing an exquisitely tailored suit that's you know wrinkle-free and is the ultimate embodiment of what you imagine a magician to be why not do the ultimate embodiment of what you could imagine sure, a magician sure. to be, right but i mean it's, it's about create it's about matching the what you envision your archetype to be yeah so i, I have always admired um the vision or the image of a magician like in the magic posters dressed in tails wearing a white tie bow tie and i often wear a white bow tie tonight i was wearing a black black bow tie um but you know i often will wear full cutaway tails Mm um because to me that's what a magician looks like you know guy hollingworth does it beautifully and he's a you know tall svelte guy so he he probably he pulls it off better than i do if you were to put you know do those uh those fashion magazines say like who who wore it went better. Yeah, I think that guy Hollingworth would beat me every time, <laughs> but I can pull it off mm-hmm. because that's it matches my character. Yeah, and it really is about you know matching and being cohesive across the board. Your material has to match your character, your style of speech, and your vocabulary, and your hairstyle, and your skin tone, you know, skin, uh, you know, do you have any blemishes? I mean, all these things, it's all one big package. And people are looking at every detail. I, you know, I notice when I walk out here, the women often will look down at my shoes. 
Yeah. You know, they always say, like, you know, women look at your shoes, your watch, and I forget what the last one is, your, uh, your teeth, or I forget what the third one is. But but there's there are certain points that people who know better will pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anyway, I like to try to match the archetype of a magician. And when I was a kid growing up, my favorite book of all times uh, was Tannen's Magic Catalog, number 12. That was my, my the one I grew up on. Yeah. Um, I still have my original Tannen's Magic Catalog. And it had all these pictures of magicians. They're all hand-drawn by Ed Michelle or some other, uh, some other artist, but mostly by Ed Michelle. And the magician character was wearing tails and he was making, he had lightning bolts coming out of his fingertips and, you know, and he had like, you know, smoke appearing from, you know, I don't know, a, a vanishing coin in his hand. And that was what I wanted to create. I wanted to be that magician. A little do you know that when you actually buy the trick from Tannins or anywhere else where they had these candles, it was never anywhere near as good as what it looked like. There's no lightning. (laughs) There's no lightning bolts. There's no smoke. You know, we didn't have, uh, you know, all these smoke gimmicks like we have today. Back then, if if anything, it was like a chemical. Um, but, But that would ruin your clothing. So, you know, we all grew up in a different time. I, I wish that younger magicians would pay more attention to hygiene and not look like a slob, not look like, you know, just a guy who does tricks. You know, being a magician is a powerful figure. It's a powerful um, fictional character. And, you know, you're, we're playing the fictional part. I mean, I at least I am. I mean, there are people like... I, who say, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a, a 24/7 magician. I'm a guy. I'm a computer programmer. I can do some tricks on the side. Fine, um, but in my case, I'm playing a fictional character, which is this magician that people hear about lives in the Walter Astoria, and we want to come and see him in his lair, mm-hmm. right? The magician's lair. Um, um, L a i r, not layer like a layer cake. <laughs> right? And so, you know, I think that. Uh, there's a responsibility to try to match that image. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that you have to match the classical magician image? No, not at all. You, of course, you can create anything you like. Yeah. Right. You know, you're an artist. You can do anything and justify it and say, "This is my vision of what a magician is." So this is not the only way. It's just the way I I chose. Is it, it may have been easy, even easier than someone who wants to be more original because I'm I'm relying on some very well-documented source material, which mm-hmm. is all these decades or, or centuries of magicians dressing like Robert Houdin and, sure. and later. Um, of course, before Robert Houdin, people were dressing in wizard's robes, right? With, you know, pointed caps and, and uh, you know, half moons and stars on their outfits. But um, that it makes a, a, a salient point that the reason that Robert Houdin was dressed like what we envision a magician to dress like is because in high society in Paris where he was working in his uh, theater in the Palais Royal, um, that's how his guests were dressed. They were dressed in similar evening wear. So he was not attempting to be a magician archetype. He was dressing like everyone else. In fact, many of, of Robert Houdin's clients, one of them actually I recall reading was was a, um, a professional tailor. So he was getting the same clothes that his clients were getting because they both shopped at the same tailor, right? Yeah. So nowadays, if a magician is dressing like his audience, it may mean that you're dressing down because everyone else is dressing down in our yeah. country. And I get it, but in my case, I'm just trying to build it up a little bit. Well, yeah, of course. 
And you, I, yeah, it's just a, again, it's a different context. It's, yeah. you're creating a show where people come to you, like you said. Yeah. So you get to set the rules. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So I, had, I don't know, I mean, I, we can go with so many different directions. I, I have some other cool stories about things that have happened here over the years, or mm-hmm. do you have any questions that you'd like to? Yeah, uh, I, ha- I have a bunch of stuff over here. So you mentioned uh, Tannins. I, so I interviewed Adam last night. Oh, great. At Tannins. Great. And, uh, you know, he asked me to ask you about Tannins Magic Camp and oh, how, sure. that, yeah, how that sure. influenced your, your magic growing Absolutely, up absolutely. Like Tannins Magic Camp was great. I still have friends that you know we grew up together and and still stay in touch for 30 plus years which is extraordinary right um i started going there at age i think 12 or 13 mm-hmm. and then continued on age 14 15 and i think at age 16 i was a junior counselor for um two three years until i went to college yeah and then went back multiple times when i was in college and then i stopped going for a while um and then have visited several times since then as a professional going back and trying to give back to the students and you don't you know when you go there you don't get paid even as a counselor as a guest performer you go there because you care about passing back or passing on the skills that you've learned as you know in, in the trenches and the children, the students there are like me. They're sponges. They are eager. They're so intent on becoming better at their craft. And it's it's really invigorating to see that. So I go there and I learn so much from them. It's really, I, I go there with the intent to teach them, but I learn about how to be excited again about my own my own work. Yeah. But when I was there, I, I started going as a, as a kid. And, and um, the, the way that the camp used to run was you were divided up into either stage or close-up magic. Mm-hmm. And you dedicate your entire week, sleepaway camp, to focusing either on your close-up magic or on your stage. So there was no crossover. You couldn't be in both. And then even in that subset, there were multiple uh, subsets. So you'd have advanced stage magic, intermediate stage magic, and beginner stage magic. Yeah. Advanced close-up magic, intermediate close-up magic, and... Uh, beginner close-up magic and i leapt right into advanced close-up magic at age 13. (laughs) so that's because i had already mastered much of the material from the derek dingle book complete works of derek dingle and i'd already become a big fan of harry lorraine's writings and had learned at age 13 a lot of his work from from close-up card magic and quantum leaps and all many of his books in between sure so i was kind of a little bit of a prodigy a little bit like a wise guy and the teachers who were there were um I would say somewhat impressed because a lot of them took to me and I became close friends with Jay Sankey who was uh, at the time a no-name magician but he had just gotten uh, notoriety but he was there for for the week for several years uh, Johnny Ace Palmer who um, became one of my uh, one of my greatest teachers at the time um, and Bob Elliott of course who ran the camp mm-hmm. he was just the greatest because he was he schmoozed with the best of them and he he his lecture title when he performed his lecture was um, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Okay. Uh, so he was, and he had no qualms in, in saying, I got this from Derek Dingle. I got this from, from Harry Lorraine. I got this from Ken Krenzel. I stole this from Gene Mays. And these are all, you know, local New Yorkers. But mm-hmm. but he was also one of the great teachers there. So I entered the competition um, and won second place two years in a row, which was exciting. It was a little bit disappointing because I thought I was good enough to win first place. But what I didn't realize is that first the first place winner both years when I won second place 
was um, each each time a different guy, but they were both better entertainers. Yeah, their technique was not as sharp as mine, I don't think, but they were much better performers, and yeah. I lacked in that area. Um, and it took probably about another three or four years of having. Uh, conversations with my best friend at the time, his name was Mark Sisher. Uh, Mark, if you've never heard of his name before, he was one of the great magicians of his day. Unfortunately, died at age 23 of uh, cancer. Wow. A uh, really great magician. He was pals with with David Williamson, with Harry Lorraine, with Tom Mullica. He was, oh, he, you, Mark Sisher used to invite magicians to his college. He went to Connecticut College. He invited all the guys I just named, Mullica, um, uh, and Williamson, he invited Juan Tomaris from Spain to come to his college to perform there. Okay, so think about that. Like, this is like a guy who really knows magic. Yeah. Um, he was schmoozing with the best. And Mark Sisher taught me that you can't, um, you can't just focus on your technique. Mm -hmm. You know, people, of course, want to be fooled when they think you're a magician. They want to end up walking away saying, wow, that was amazing. I didn't expect that. How extraordinary. That's great. But if it was a tedious process to get there or you're not interesting as a person, then there really was no, there was no package. You haven't offered them anything but a puzzle. So Mark was great at both of those. He was a, he was a great entertainer. He knew when to stop making gags and then went to sell the magic. Yeah. And he learned that from, I think, from spending a lot of time watching Tom Reese and learning from Tom Reese. Because Tom Reese also draws that little chart in his lectures of, you know, of entertainment and going higher and higher on the on the, the line graph. And at a certain point you have to just stop the jokes and stop the comedy and then just drill home the magic so that it just it is just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was what I learned from Mark and, and we spent a lot of time together both here in New York and up in, in my house in the Westchester, um, going over like, how can we take our tricks and how can we apply the magic way, Tom Reese's magic way theory, yeah. to our own, the magic that we've already been doing. And that was something that became a, a real process. Um, and I met Mark also at Tannen's camp. So he was just, you know, I met so many people at the camp that, that have become lifelong friends. There's a guy named Steve Barnes who doesn't do magic professionally. He's, he was at one point a stock trader, like a day trader, and now I think he, he works in insurance. But we pick up where we left off. Like every time we see each other, it's, it's just my old buddy from magic, from tennis camp. Yeah. And this is someone who has become a supporter and a lifelong friend. Mm -hmm. um, and then even amongst campers and counselors, there's kind of like a, not a secret handshake, but there's a definite kinship that we all feel with each other. And when I spend time with, you know, people who are closely related to the camp, like Hiawatha, uh, who's, you may have met him at some point or seen him. Hiawatha has been a friend of mine for, you know, for decades. And I, I see him, it's like instant clicking, even if we haven't seen each other for years. And it's all through the, through the camp. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's great. And, and one of the great things about that program is that um, they encourage the students to to enter a competition. It's different than it's different now than it was then when I went there because they used to have the competition on the next to final day of the camp. Yeah, and so the entire week you'd be working on your act in secret with one of the counselors or two of the counselors who were your, kind of your confidants, like you're they were like your consigliers. They would help you, you know. But they were 
mum's the word, they wouldn't tell other campers what you were working on. Sure. But since they were pros, they could give you some really good advice. So like, we had stage magicians who were working with Tom Ogden, or you had magicians like Joe Monty, who would always come, James Brandon, who was always there. Um, and, uh, you know, they were really helpful with each of these students. By the time that their competition act was on, on that Friday, the acts were pretty tight by that point. Sure. And then the results were given on Saturday and it was a big awards show. I think that they've changed it now where you work on your act during the year and then you come to Tannen's Magic Camp and then you do your act on the first or the second day. And then the counselors work with you to critique it and make it better. So that's actually a really interesting um, twist to their uh, the original plan mm -hmm. because now think about it you go there with something you already have put a lot of work into and then you have professional eyes working on it with you to improve it and then there's no competition at the end yeah so you've just worked on your material it's like a, a, a collaboration mm -hmm. and I have the feeling I don't know this for a fact but that the other students now are also working with you and you can't beat the collaboration factor you know there's no one who can go into a magic show or magic you know uh, in trying to create a magic show and say I can do this all myself yeah like this show here is half written by me half written by Mark and then another half written by the audience because and like Copperfield told this to me he came here and he said Steve this show was written because you listened to your audience no one can write that show you can't sit down with a pen and paper or a computer you know word processor document and say I'm going to write that show yeah it's purely by listening and listening and working it and refining it and I don't record my shows um, Copperfield does he actually records every show and has everyone every show on a, a video uh, you know archive which I think is amazing um, but I do keep notes if something interesting happens like I run back here after the show is over and I, I write down make sure that I keep that I keep it in Evernote actually um, and this way I've got a record of some funny line that came up or something interesting Interesting that I can change. Like even recently, I've, I've changed the moment that I give back the pen that I borrow. Mm -hmm. And that frees up a time later on when I'm giving a talk where I don't have to interrupt that talk by walking over and returning the pen. Yeah. That came, I came up with that last weekend. Very minor, minor detail. But again, having done this show, you know, going up to 5,000 times, you have the luxury of, of working on that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for people who are starting off in in in, um, in a show or in making any sort of a venture, I guess my advice is to to let things happen. Like, don't be overly detail oriented because then it be it makes you look square. Yeah. And I remember in the very beginning of when I started Chamber Magic, when I was doing it at the National Arts Club. My vision was to do a Hofsenser style show. So I said to Mark Levy, I said, hey, you know, we should talk about Hofsenser. And I could explain about how, by the way, this is apocryphal, most likely a lie. Uh, we talk about how when, when Hofsenser died, um, he instructed his wife to burn all of his papers and to destroy his props so that there would be no record of his material. And Mark said, yeah, that's a great story. People would be in, in, intrigued by that. Um, again, it is most likely a, a falsehood. But, sure. but it's a great story. So I started my act that way. I started off the show walking out and I was as, as if I were giving a lecture. And I had a candle on the table and I had a, um, a match that was treated with a um, with, with um, 
a chemical, I can't remember which chemical it is, but when you touch it to glycerin, it actually lights on fire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, right next to the candlestick, I had a small glob of glycerin, and then it was like, I forget, it was like something phosphate, I can't remember what the name is, some sort of a phosphate, um, treated on the tip of the match. So when you touch that to the glycerin, then there's a chemical reaction, and it lights up, and then you can light the candle. That was my the, my original plan for the opening. And Mark said, yeah, that could be good. You could be talking about Hofzinser and how he you know, had a candle-lit salon. And so I started the show that way. That was my vision. And um, first of all, that's not a very reliable chemical trick. <laughs> and I had a lot of times where it sputtered and never lit on, on fire. And people were looking at me like, why is he standing there with a, a match that's like, you know, <laughs> spurting a couple of little sparks and nothing's <laughs> happening. So then I had to like, you know, uh, strike, I had a, a box of matches. So I just strike it and light, it, light the actual candle on uh, the flame. However, um, it didn't play. Even when it, the match did light, yeah. it wasn't interesting to people. Where's the engagement? And also, um, they didn't come to hear people. Sorry, I didn't mean to. That's no, okay. Um, people didn't come to hear a magician talk about a magician, right? Yeah. They came to watch a magician. So why are they coming to watch you talk about some other great magician? Mm-hmm. Right. That's like if you you wouldn't hear a comedian talk about yeah. There's this great comedian who tells a joke, and the joke that he tells is blankety blank. Yeah. Right? Well, just tell your joke. Right. Why would you make a you know second person removed? Uh, yeah. You know no, that's perfect. Like there's yeah. no there's no need to do that. People coming there not to be ent- to be educated, but they want to they want to be entertained. Right. Yeah. That's that's their that's their objective. So I had to listen to the audience, and I changed that. After two or three weeks of, of mistakes, um, I learned my lesson and said, okay, we're not going to include the sputtering match trick anymore. <laughs> um, and it, when it works, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the things I'd like to do here, I'm probably not going to do it here because I don't have much time left, but in my new room at the palace, I, what I really want to do is that opening that Panetti used to do where he would have a bunch of uh, candlesticks in a candle holder, so in a candelabra, take out a pistol, fire it at the, at the candles, and they instantly light up on, on fire. There's a way to do that. That's cool. Yeah. That's going to be – that's one of the things I'm going to work on for, for my, new, uh, my new show. And the new show venue, um, since I want to encourage people to come back to the show, yeah. I'm going to be adding as my New Year's resolution <clears throat> one new item every six months. Wow. That's a very ambitious goal because it, is, yeah. it usually takes me about a year or two to put something new into this show. And I've cycled things in and out many times. You know, I used to do, like I mentioned, the book test and the rising cards. And I used to do a pulse uh, stopping routine and some other psychic stuff um, that was fun. Um, but this show right now is pretty tight. Yeah. So it's very hard to take something out, but I realize to grow as an artist, you have to put yourself into an uncomfortable yeah. or a um, a position where you feel like there's there's a chance. <laughs> oh, excuse me. You feel like there there is a chance for failure. Yeah. And this show right now that I'm doing right now, it's alive. There's not much room for failure because I've kind of. I've done it enough times to be able to to circumvent that or to take take steps to make sure that certain likely problems don't occur. Yeah. Um, but when you're trying something new, then it's really like you said, it's very live. It's very it's a live wire again, and um, I love that. Yeah. I think you have to love that as a performer. You know. Yeah. You you have to. It's got to be a a reason for it to stay fresh for yourself. Otherwise, why do it? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's. Um, you know, you mentioned going to Tannins and seeing these 
kids and their passion for it kind of re-energizing you do you i mean you do thousands of shows how how do you not burn out well here's the thing um okay i have seen performers in vegas not magicians necessarily who are going through the motions they're telling their their hackneyed jokes or their stock jokes and they're getting the reactions that that they've always gotten and I can see it as a performer. Maybe the audience doesn't can't tell. The audience may not be able to pick up on it, but I can see this is overly practiced material. They're asleep. Yeah, exactly. They're phoning yeah. it in. And I said to myself, I, I don't want to be that guy. And then I realized that people are reviewing this show, right? I mean, on TripAdvisor, if you go to TripAdvisor, Chamber Magic is the number eight show in all of New York City. Yeah. So that means that you've got you know all of Broadway, you've got Radio City Music Hall. Then you got Chamber Magic, then you've got you know Lincoln Center, and so I mean this is a very visible show that I'm putting on here. And if someone comes in to this performance and says, "Oh, you know that was lousy, it was awful," and they're gonna feel that they have the right to put it up on TripAdvisor or any other review site. That's the world that we live in, you know. Yeah. Amazon.com created that you know accessibility. Yeah. That people all have a voice, and unfortunately or fortunately, that every voice is equal, you know. So um, I'm aware of that, and I'm not playing to TripAdvisor or anything like that. I touch it at, at none at all. Sure. Uh, that's entirely a, you know, a, an objective reviewing site. But, but I know I know that, but I'm aware yeah. that you know it, people keep on coming in here because they want to see what the fuss is about. Yeah. So it's in my best interest to be putting on a hot tight a very alive show yeah. at every performance yeah. because any one of these people could walk out and say oh that that was horrendous that was yeah. terrible why would I want who, and people who, are more who, likely to share a negative opinion correct, than they correct. Are positive and then also you know when you look at a, a review site whether it's for Amazon you're looking at for a new book or if you're buying whatever it is you look at the negative reviews first Mm-hmm. Right to see well what 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 are, what's, what's the, the worst, worst thing right yeah. that people have said about this and then you, then you start to balance in your head well, okay well that guy said something negative but I can live with that so let me look at all the the positive reviews okay this sounds great and okay and then you you weigh you do a, a, a Benjamin Franklin uh, you know plus and minus sheet right you know mm-hmm. positive uh, and negative outcomes which one has more tally marks yeah and so again. I don't play that game. I don't have anything to do with, with the review sites, but um, I'm delighted that when I see very, you know, like ravenously excited, you know, excited reviews, it, it thrills me, and I read them all. But um, it also reminds me that I have a great responsibility yeah. to make sure that everyone who's coming through these doors walks out not only with a good view of me, but I have always felt that I am an ambassador. Sure. For magic. Yes. Because, you know, we don't see, we see magicians often. Mm-hmm. But these people who came here tonight, you were in an audience of 65, 66 people. They may not come to a magic show ever again in their life. Yeah. And they may never have been to one before, even though they're grown adults. And, um, you know, that having said that, if you're the one guy they're going to see, you have to be the best, as best as you can be, yeah. right? Um, there's a great, a great story. Um, I can't recall who said it, and it may not even be about a magician, but it was about a, like a, a performer, maybe a circus performer, who said that in every audience, there's going to be one person who is either a little kid 
who has never seen this type of thing before, mm-hmm. and you're their first experience, the first exposure to this. So you have a responsibility to that kid, yeah, right, to make sure that they have they walk away thinking, "Wow, this is cool," or "This is inspirational," or "This is something that I'd like to experience again." Yeah. Or there might be someone in the audience who is poor, who has saved their every penny or every dollar over a period of time to be there to watch your act because they really care and they want to see what you deliver, what you can offer. And you owe it to them also for someone who worked hard to make this happen, to make that interaction happen. So remember the little boy and remember the poor man who both are experiencing you for the first time and, and really like, try to live up to their expectations. Yeah. That, that's, really, that's really good advice. Yeah, know? absolutely. It's, I don't look for the little boy or the poor man because I don't usually have you know little children here or poor people who come to the Waldorf. Sure. But I am very aware that in, in the same vein that there are people here who will take away from this. Yeah. Magic is great. I want more of this in my life. Yeah. Or they might say, yeah, you know, magic is sh- cheesy or schlocky and I don't need any more of this. I got my my fix for the yeah. rest of my life. So I don't want that second thing to ever happen here. Yeah. That's that's why I keep working at it. And that's I and this is not for you, of course, so this is for some of the listeners, but and I talk about I talked about this with Adam last night, but it's also like knowing that part, which is I have responsibility to do good magic for these people is this the flip side of the same coin which is if i know i can't do good magic for these people i shouldn't do magic for these people it's the same responsibility and you sure, have to be sure. honest with you, can, you can step away sure yeah it's a no, self-awareness yeah, absolutely you know? it's a self-awareness yeah, there's there's no obligation and you know you don't have to go on too long either yeah you know if you have if you've got one great trick and then people say hey that was great do another one then what happens is you start going to your b material and your c material yeah. and by the time you're finished you're not at the it's, it's the opposite of a bell uh, curve or opposite of a um, of a, uh, a growth chart yeah you're actually the opposite you know you're at the the one over x of your growth chart yeah right because that you're the last thing you show them should be your most powerful but if you've just been winding down through your b and c material because you remembered oh, i remember this larry jennings trick you know then you're ending on their worst trick yeah and that's their last impression of you so you know there's a great saying that um I, I'm friends with Saul Stone. I don't know if you ever came across Saul Stone. He's sure. a great coin magician, super talented. He's been around forever. He's in his 90s and um, still kicking and, and still doing very solid magic. His coin magic is just, he's got this perfect soft touch. But Saul told me that when he was growing up, he, he met um, Al Flosso. Mm-hmm. And Al Flosso imparted on him uh, the following vaudevillian pattern. The vaudevillian pattern is... Remember, these are these are guys who are doing very short acts, right? Yeah. They're getting on there, uh, giving their little act in a in a variety act, a variety show. His slogan was: "You hit him over the head, you tie him in a knot, and then you get off." <laughs> okay, so that was his his you know very picturesque way of saying, do a powerful opening, yep. right? So that the audience goes, wow, this is worth paying attention to, because remember on vaudeville there's a lot of you know things that probably aren't worth paying attention to. Sure. So hit them over the head, then tie them in a knot means give them some interesting texture, you know, something that they wouldn't have expected. Yeah. There's a little bit of uh, you know flavor that is an excitement, and then 
get off before they realize that you don't have anything else and you know get off before the going gets bad before you disappoint them. yeah before you disappointment yeah. disappoint them um, so it's the old saying of you know leave them wanting more yeah right so hit them over the head tie them in a knot and then get off. get off. Now, I don't use that actually sure. in this show because I'm here with people. I know I'm going to be with them for 90 minutes. Yeah. There's a lot of time to develop relationships. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to hit him over the head with my first trick. It's the first opening number is, a you know, I'm guessing cards that people are thinking of. If you ask people after this show, even the very same day, what was the first trick in the show? Or what was the best thing you saw? They will never name that opening number, ever. Yeah. And Mark Levy and I have tested this. Yeah. Mark will sometimes, you know, he'll come in and he'll just check to see how things are going. And he'll just do like exit polls, just for fun, like, you know, totally casual. Yeah, sure. And say, hey, what was your favorite trick? No one ever, ever in, in you know, almost 5,000 shows yeah. has ever said that opening trick. They don't even remember it happened. Yeah. Because it wasn't designed to be a memorable trick. It was designed to make uh, to build a slow rapport yeah. where they can sense my character they you're setting speak. the stage for the fact that you're going to be interacting with everybody in the audience yes. throughout the whole show correct correct and so that's the objective of that trick and um, the second one that I do which is the boomerang card where I catch a I, you know shoot a card up in the air single-handedly and then catch it in between mm-hmm. two named cards um, that's added into the show for the objective objective of showing that I have skill yeah because People will always applaud skill. Mm-hmm. You know, look at the juggler yeah. at a magic convention, right? The juggler at a magic convention always gets the great hand um, because we know that he must, he or she must have practiced that routine incessantly it's to, to become that that that, uh, that accurate. I mean, look at someone like Charlie Fry. You know, you know that he. I mean, of course, his magic is sensational. His juggling is bar none perfect. Mm-hmm. It's just you know exquisite and. We, we applaud skill. That's just what we do as humans. We see sure. someone do something we know is difficult. You know, we look at athletes. You know, you see someone, okay, I can run, I can run, uh, you know, around the track, but I can't run around the track that fast. So we applaud the gold medal winner. We applaud the Olympic winners. Um, so I think it's important to, of course, show your skill, but you have to pick and choose the times to include yeah. it. Well, and it serves another purpose, which is that you know that's obviously it that's debatable that that is sleight of hand i mean right. it is because it's kind of like a cut and it's like a you know it's a flourish sure definitely but to the audience that is sleight of hand that's because they that's don't true. know they don't know what that word that right. phrase means correct right? correct is so they go right? that's what that's that's how magicians do their magic exactly and and, and then everything else you do is right. so clean and so hands-off that they yeah, go well i don't know what's going on yeah and, and here's the other thing one of the design parameters i had when creating this show um this is even before i met mark levy is i knew that ricky jay was doing um his 52 assistance show had had been doing it yeah and i knew that he you know is such an extraordinary performer and actor and that when he performs his magic, his card magic, it's usually a display of incredible, almost superhuman skill. Yeah. And I knew that if I was going to be doing my show in the same town where people has had been talking about that, because the 52 Assistants was such a hit um, when he performed it the first time, that people were still talking about it even after it was closed for mm-hmm. you know for years to come after. So I thought I'm going to create a show where it doesn't seem like I'm doing anything with that requires skill, mm-hmm. and that in fact. It will appear as if I have real magic. Yeah. 
Now, I'm not claiming like a shut eye that I have magic powers because I think that's, that goes beyond, that goes into the world of skeptics and I don't like to, to broach that. Sure. But um, the design parameter was let's create a show where I told myself I want to create a show where it really appears as if I'm, I have wizard-like powers. And that was, I think it bears out in the magic that's in the current show right now. Any drink called for. I mean, that... I- Right? I mean, it looks it's my like... favorite trick I've ever seen in a show, probably. Oh, well, thank you for saying I that. I loved it so much. Oh, I really, really liked it a lot. Thank yeah. you. And that's for me, That's it's so rewarding because um, I feel like Harry Potter when I'm performing that trick. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. It's like I feel like a wizard. Yeah. It's, it's something else. The way that your tricks are constructed as well, there's so much time... Like you know, you you did you said it was like thirteen pieces over the course of ninety minutes yep. or something like that. So each each piece is around eight or nine minutes long. That's a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you know, the the moments where magic is happening is so strong, and there's been so much time since like you know the procedure. Magicians know that you're you're already doing the method before the trick apparently starts. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So there's so much time there. That when the magic is happening, I it was crazy because I was like I was being fooled, and then I remembered I knew how the method worked, and then I was like, oh, I don't care, this is amazing, and then I was like getting fooled again. I see. Oh, that's interesting. And it was like that's that that particular thing has never happened to me before. Oh, that's very cool. I like I like how you described that. Yeah. Yeah. One time Eugene Berger came here, and then we were we were laughing about this together at the Magic Castle. He said, Steve. Or he said, Steve, Steve. One of the things I'm most impressed by <laughs> is that and I, I can't do it in my Eugene impression. Sure. But um, uh, he said, one of the things I'm most impressed by is that everyone misremembers that trick. Yes. Everyone misremembers it. Yeah. To a person, yeah. whether you're a magician or not. And they walk out of there going, no, that can't have happened. But I know it did. Yeah. And for me, that's very rewarding that someone of Eugene's, uh, you know, level uh, mm-hmm. or stature recognizes that. And, and and he was so kind at the Genie convention. I went to the, the first Genie Magic uh, magazine convention. And um, during his lecture, he called me out and said, you know, you have to think you have to have a well thought out script where it feels as if you're saying it for the first time yeah and but everything is so perfectly scripted for example steve cohen's show and i was like oh my god i'm watching eugene Berger, and he just called it's like you know it's like winning the lottery yeah um, i couldn't believe it every all i felt all the heads turned towards me at the same moment it was just kind of uncanny but but you know he had been here to the show and he said look he, he recognizes that there's a script and that the script is constructed in a way that makes everyone or causes everyone to misremember what they saw yeah so you know it's it's it takes a lot of work to get there and also i paired out so many words you know i used to be a i I like to talk but i used to like to talk a lot more (laughs) and the show was gabby it was a very gabby show um and then i realized i can take out hunks of prose yeah and still get the same reaction or maybe a better reaction and then i realized my voice was actually not as strained because i was saying fewer words sure and then i started to make it a mental game with myself well how how many words can i strip out before i'm down to the minimum yeah you're just grunting (laughs) exactly so i'm just like hey yeah Uh, (laughs) caveman magic yeah um the caveman's magician there you go so um 
So, you know, I, that's an interesting balance to find. Those like being articulate and getting your point across, but also being succinct. Yes, right, exactly, it, it, precisely that. And so, um, then it was just a. Pl- I, I've never written down the entire show. I don't have a written script of this entire show. I probably will do that because we're recording. Um, the final few weeks here, we're going to be recording every show. Oh, great! Starting next weekend, I'll have on file um, the next. I think I have 18 shows left, so I'll be recording all 18 shows, and then using that as the basis of a script, and I'll have the script, you know, transcribed from the video from like a typical show, sure, and then have that as a record of the show for for posterity's sake. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I saw actually, you know, who did that? I was at Darren Brown's house once in, in London before he moved out of London, and um, we're pals. And um, and Darren uh, showed me a script of his show. I was like, "Wow, you actually wrote the whole thing down?" He goes, "No, I said it, and they just they just transcribed it." Yeah. So here's the script, you know. I was like, "Wow, that's that's amazing." I never even considered doing that. And then Copperfield said, "Oh, you haven't done that?" I'm like, "Oh no, uh, sorry. I guess I'm behind, you know, the, the professional magician schedule here. Uh, I haven't transcribed my entire act." But again, it's a 90 minute show, so it's, a, it's gonna be a long document. And it ends up being a thick book, you know, perfect bound. And um, I think it's important to have that, you know, it's just as a record. For posterity, does Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, that's something else. I, I, I hate to sound pompous. I'm pretty down to earth, but I, I hate to sound, you know, full of myself. But I'm very aware of making or creating a legacy because I really feel like I've done good work. And I'm proud of I'm really proud of my work. And I feel that I have a responsibility to at some point pass on what I've learned. And so by being aware of my legacy or being cre- aware of trying to create a legend of what this is all about, yeah. um, it gives you a, a chance to step back and look at it from a meta view. And I'm really, I'm, I'm very, I'm hyper aware of the fact that this is a unique opportunity or unique experience I've created. So, you know, how can I make this um, last far beyond my years? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I think about, I make choices based on will that carry on my legacy? Now, there's a great line in Hamilton. I don't know if you saw the, the musical Hamilton. I did not see okay, it. Okay, I've seen it three times. But um, <laughs> it helps to have friends in the, in the, uh, in the orchestra. Yeah. But um, there's a line in, in that show that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote where he says, what is a legacy? A legacy is planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. And I love that line because that's what I feel like I'm doing is I'm planting seeds. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I'm planting the seeds yeah. and I'm aware that there will be a beautiful garden and I may never see that garden. I might when I'm older, you know, I'm now 46, maybe when I'm in my 80s, 90s, maybe magic will have changed because I did this. Yeah. And I hope that does happen because I think this is a good direction for magic. I believe that this is a good direction for magic. And what is this when you say this? Is this, I'm pointing to this. I'm, I, you're, you're able to see me gesturing at this sure. room. But I'm, what I'm talking about is just the um, the construct of 
parlor magic. Yeah. And parlor magic as a yeah, it, in many ways has died out because no one has a parlor in their house anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, when Mark Twain gave after dinner speeches, uh, you know, he was giving it in front of a fireplace with people with high society listening to him. Or when when Charles Bertram was giving doing magic shows for upper you know, high class uh, members of British society in, in the UK, you know, people were gathering in a, in an actual parlor room because their mansion had one. Yeah. But how many people do you know have that has a uh, that currently have a parlor in their house? Few people, if unless yes. I mean, modern houses don't even have that type of a room. Um, we may have a living room. We may have a, a library. You may have you know you certainly have a dining room. But the parlor is it's it's you know it's it's gone. It's passe. Sure. Um, so the creation of a parlor magic environment is what I'm gesturing at with my hands. And this is what I'm hoping will inspire people in the future. I have, I've got tons of magicians who come here to the show. It will inspire them to say, well, maybe I can do something that will carry on the tradition. And hopefully by seeing my example, bring their magic to a higher level. Again, I'm not saying I'm the greatest in the world by any stretch, but I think that this is... I've, I, I'm very proud of the level of magic that I'm, I'm presenting here, because I think it's it's you know it's at world class level. Yeah. And um, there's there are um, enough people. I, I, here's a good example. Um, Chris Kenner was telling me that there was a, a magician who said, "I want to create a show like Steve Cohen. I'm going to create a, a, a magic show at a hotel for upscale people, uh, upscale audiences." And and Chris said, "Wait a minute, have you ever seen Steve's show?" And he, this magician said, "No, I've never seen it." He goes, "Well, why don't you go buy a ticket and go see what it's all about before you say I want that?" Yeah, because you, it's just nebulous. Yeah, you know, everyone brings to any. Uh, interaction, their own baggage or their own coloration, right? Because yeah. of your own, you know, worldview. And what this magician might have thought I'm actually doing might entirely be different from what I am doing, right? Yeah. So I think it, it it behooves anyone to come and see this. I'm not saying this as a money grab, asking people to buy tickets. I'm saying if you want to elevate magic, just go and see world class magic. Try to find the best. Yeah. And say okay. Um, I aspire to greater uh, performances myself. I'd like to find other sources of inspiration. And maybe that's not in magic. Maybe you find uh, an inspiration uh, by watching a, a a live theater show, or maybe by, I know that you're interested in comedy, maybe there's a great comic who, who really inspires you by the way they construct their act, and there's just a beautiful progression, and and it has a very satisfying you know outcome, it'll blow mm-hmm. off. So you can be inspired from, in many different ways, but I think that you know, since our medium that we've chosen is magic, why not find the very best? Yeah. Go to the top and see if you can find something to be inspired by. I used to, as a kid, go to uh, Mostly Magic. It was a great magic club down in Greenwich Village on Carmine Street. It's not there anymore. And it was founded by a guy named Imam, who is a Pakistani, wonderful uh, storyteller and magician. He did great, really great magic. I mean, mm-hmm. Imam was, he was the embodiment of, of a, a true magician. Yeah. I, I could tell you a story some other time. But um, his club 
was a uh, a nightclub just for magic. He had some singers there, and he had some comedians and some jugglers. Sure, but the that's what it's called, mostly magic, right? <laughs> but but the thrust of it, or the the crux of it, was he had sensational magicians. So I used to go down there, and I, again, I lived in Westchester, but my parents were very trusting, and they would either send me down on the train, or I would you know go in with them, and I would hang out with my buddy Mark Sisher. And we would visit uh, mostly magic regularly, uh, you know, monthly. I'd come down here all the time to see Slidini perform. Wow! To see uh, Johnny Ace Palmer, who had just won the world, the um, the FISM uh, championship, Grand Prix, yeah. Grand, Grand Prix, and to watch um, some other great uh, performers who you may not even know. Uh, Torkova, Bobby Torkova, is a he was doing a sensational, really great uh, linking ring routine, and he just had such a great rapport with the audience. Um, Joe Devlin, who's who's still out there working uh, cruise ships, it's just had, I saw his act there many, many times. And then they had visiting magicians who came in, and I saw Tom Mullica there, and you see, you know, all these truly greats. Rocco would perform there regularly. Yeah. And I got a chance to see the best. And that, as a kid growing up, like, wow, I want that. I want to be... At that level, that was my inspiration. In addition to obviously my Tannins Magic, you know, catalog, looking at these, you know, lightning bolts from the fingertip guys, I saw real live performers working in a nightclub. Now I didn't ever really want to work in a nightclub, sure, but I did end up working at Mostly Magic. Uh, I did two or three shows there, and it was it was fun, but it wasn't my thing. Sure, um, but you know, if you're gonna hunt down anything, go to the top. That's my advice. Yeah. You have to. You also like when you're trying stuff out. You have to. And I got this from my favorite comedian, but he he likes to say you have to try on your influences when you're starting out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So go go and find something that really makes you laugh or that really astonishes you or you know whatever, and then you know try and figure out what it is that they do, and by all means copy that at the beginning. Right, right. But as soon as you kind of understand it. Then that's where you then go. Okay, now what? Who am I? What am I gonna yes. do? How do I? How do I take what I've demonstrated and learned, and then like, then revitalize it in sure, a way that sure. is authentic to myself? Absolutely. That's something else I learned at Tannen's camp because I tried on my uh, influences for sure. I learned David Roth's. Uh, portable hole routine mm-hmm. the coins that drop into that black felt hole great, with, yeah. the, with the uh, invisible coin purse it's just brilliant and so I learned that um, from the book Coin Magic by Richard Kaufman mm-hmm. and I also saw one of the early VHS tapes that Tenens put out called The Stars of Magic and David Roth did his all, his entire act and I believe that was on there I remember he did the purse and the glass routine and I'm almost certain he did the um, did the uh, the portable hole and having watched him do it and watching his mannerisms and the way he performed coin magic, when I went to perform the portable hole in my Tannins Magic competition, <laughs> I was David Roth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, a, a coin, a coin and a glass, a glass and a coin. <laughs> and I'm like, the, the, the judges are looking at me like, okay. Yeah. And here's another story. So I was just with Harry Lorraine. And uh-huh. Harry, Harry's been a great friend of mine for for decades. And even though he's moved out of New York and, and he's uh, he's – 
um, living up in Massachusetts now, we have the same accountant. So we get together with our accountant, who happens to also be an amateur magician. Oh wow! Uh, right. So we have little magician meetings uh, you know, with, with Harry and our, our accountant and myself. And Harry told me a great story recently. He he, <laughs> he said that one time when he was uh, still on the road working his memory act, because mm-hmm. he used to be a memory expert. You know, yeah. Uh, his 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 bread and butter was doing memory demonstrations and in a very entertaining way and he was approached after one of his shows maybe in the 60s or 70s by a a pair of guys um, whose last name was Ishkowitz okay and he remembered that name for all these decades and the Ishkowitz guys came over to him and said oh I'd like to introduce you to our our, uh, you know our our nephew his name is is Sammy uh, Sammy Ishkowitz and and so we hear that you are a magician, Mr. Lorraine. Is that true? And, you know, because he had put out some magic books. And, of course, he was known to the public as a memory expert, not as a magician. Sure. So then Harry says, oh, yes, of course. Uh, and they said, well, we'd like Sammy here to show you something. He's been studying with Slidini. Okay? Yeah. So then Harry's like, okay, I'd love to see it. So this little kid, Sammy Ishkowitz, sits down at the table. And he picks up some <laughs> coins. And he says, I'm going to fool you. <laughs> And and so Harry was like thinking this is a gag or is a joke, yeah. but in fact that little Sammy Ishkowitz was trying to be an old Italian man, yeah, because that was the only thing he knew, yeah. That's how he learned, and is that wrong? No, because you know that's that's all he knows. You have to yeah. start someplace, but you know to be an artist you have to inf- in, uh, infuse your own personal, um, your own personal, uh, you know life force yeah. into your work and there's no one who has that life force other than you yeah. so even this show you know this has grown so much like I, I really feel like I'm just being myself mm-hmm. an extension of myself of course in, in front of the audience and it doesn't feel put on and I think that's where people are connecting with me mm-hmm. is that it's become an actual act of genuine interconnectivity yeah right it's not a put on it's not being somebody else it's it's really me it's like you're, I'm stripping away I'm, I'm showing you my, my core my, my guts sure and I'm, I'm laying it all out for you and I know that I've, I've heard because I listened to your podcast you talk about being vulnerable and I've never been vulnerable in that I talk about foibles that I have sure. I've never talked about things I've done that I'm embarrassed by but mm-hmm. but I do show myself I, I talk about my family and I talk about you know um you know, just about my wife and my life, and it just makes you a more of a, 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 a an approachable human being. You're a more three dimensional character. Yes, yeah. yes, and and that's important. That's you know, people are interested in people, right? Yeah. If you read any of the Dale Carnegie work, you know, how to win friends, influence people. Yeah. That's instrumental. It's 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 about creating a connection with others and respecting the other person and you know I have a lot of very very hoity-toity people who come in here yeah very affluent they can be demanding and in fact we have a name for my usher and I we have I have, I have three ushers who work for me you met one of them tonight she um, was lovely yeah thanks her name is Jamie but I've got Jamie I have uh, Trish and I have another uh, named Bianca they've been with me this is a testament um, they've been working with me each for about nine years wow 
and with me every single week, which is which is great. Um, but we have a, a phrase for the people who are who are challenging customers. Um, we got this actually from Disney because uh-huh. at Disney World they they don't want to say to each other like, oh this is an asshole. Yeah. You know we have an asshole customer. You can't say that in front of the people. <laughs> so they have a, a phrase that we've used now, which is called treasured guests. Oh great. <laughs> That's our, that's our code word to yeah. each other. It's like, oh, we have a treasured guest. It's in the second row. And it's now, like, that instantly tells me, like, be careful. Yeah. This is a live wire. This is someone who could potentially, you know, cause trouble. Yeah. And, you know, um, I have, let me show you something, actually. I, I, I carry with me a talisman mm-hmm. at every show. And it gives me the power to erase any of that um, entitlement that people might throw at me. Yeah. So can you stay here for a second. I'm going to grab this. Okay. So here's what I carry at every show. Um, it's a card to wallet wallet, but that's not the talisman. This is, I just had, I don't even do card to wallet in my show, but I just think it's a nice wallet. Um, I carry in here uh, two things, actually. These are pretty nice. This is a card that Max Molini um, used in his show in 1928. Wow. Right? Yeah, sure, sure. I I carry that with me. That's not the talisman. This is it. Okay. So um, it's a playing card. It happens to be the Four of Diamonds. Mm -hmm. And this is signed um, by Warren Buffett. And it's a little drawing of his dog, and he wrote the dog's name on there for a trick that I was doing, an ambitious card routine. Yeah. But uh, this card was Nicole, if you like, was signed in Omaha, Nebraska by Warren Buffett. And when I met him, he was the richest man in the world. Yeah. He had surpassed Bill Gates that year. And he was the most genuine, most down to earth guy I had ever met in my life. Yeah. Super friendly, super enthusiastic about life. I mean, he loved my show, he gave me a standing ovation really supportive and now he still sends people into here to the Waldorf in New York he sends people and they always come up to me afterwards saying Warren sent me you yeah. know it's a very you know kind of like <laughs> an inside club thanks um, and I actually got invited out there to Omaha many times after that to perform for this kind of businessman secret society they call the the kingdom of Exarban which is the word Nebraska backwards. That's so funny. And it's like a debutante ball that they have every year where they they then coronate the queen of of uh, Axerben Kingdom and the new king. And so anyway, they, they bring me out there to do a bunch of shows for uh, for their group. That's so, so fun. I went to the I went to the shareholder meeting last year. Did you? Uh, that yeah, was, was, did you get a chance to meet Warren or no? I did not. No, but he's, he's, was, he's something else. He seems he seems like the most approachable. Genuine, he's really chill. Lovely, he's yeah. the only word for me. He's chill. Chill. And and for to describe like an eighty year old guy or whatever he is as a chill <laughs> uh, man is pretty hilarious. But he's so with it. In fact, yeah. You know, he's as you know, he, um, he's wonderful and is one of his great talents is at forecasting right and being mm-hmm. able to say well will this company will this uh, this product be profitable many years from now not just in the short term yeah so he used that against me when I was doing my show yeah in Omaha and I'll tell you about that show in a minute this is a great story um, but the uh, the first gag or first joke that I used in my show he was able to predict the punchline before I even blurted it out before I could say the punchline so I I set up the joke and then he yelled out the punchline and I said wait a minute 
he got the laugh. It was supposed to be my laugh. And now, as a performer, you know that that's good, right? You know, if, if as long as people are laughing, then whether you give the punchline or the audience gives the punchline, you've still won. Yeah. Um, but it happened again, right? And set up a joke, and he yelled out the punchline. He had never heard these jokes before. There were ones, there are jokes I have written. Yeah. But he was able to forecast the likely outcome, <laughs> given this the setup, where we were headed, and that was that was tough for me. And I said, hey, you know, I'm going to buy a ticket to your show, and then he was like, oh. Uh-huh, you know, and that was that broke it down. He let me let me take over the reins from there. But here's my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite stories. So the reason I got that gig was because of the um, CBS Sunday Morning Show I did. Yes. So there was um, one of his staff members saw it and showed him the video, and then he showed it to his best friend, a guy named Walter Scott who's another billionaire who lives in, in Omaha. Mm-hmm. And Walter Scott then showed it to his wife. His wife came to New York to scout me with this event planner. And they didn't even come to see the show. They just wanted to walk in and see that this thing really exists. Yeah. That it wasn't just a scam on television. Because they wanted to have me come out to Omaha to do a private show for Warren's best friend's birthday party. Yeah. Okay, so this is Warren's... Uh, the best friend's name, as I mentioned, was Walter Scott. So um, they book an event for a private show enough months in advance that I was able to cancel my New York shows. But I said, look, I'm canceling five shows for me to be there with you. And they said, oh, no, we understand that. We're going to pay you a cancellation fee for all those. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but then I have a fee for your performance. They said, oh, of course, we're going to take care of that too. So they then said well um of course we have to we'll arrange your travel we own net jets you know so we can set up your private plane from teterboro out to omaha like this is this is getting better and better yeah and i'll be performing for the richest man in the world so as the millionaire's magician as my moniker that was very desirable so everything about this seemed great yeah um i had any heckled you the whole time no they didn't heckle me. they didn't heckle me at all i mean that was the one there were like a couple of jokes, couple of jokes. i'm just kidding uh, <laughs> it, was, it turned out being a, one of the most positive experiences of my life so of I, I don't mean to no of course right. not no i was just yeah. making a joke so yeah so so anyway i i don't typically travel with my think a drink teapot because it's a little suspicious uh, device to be you know traveling with this through tsa people look at it and go oh, what is this device it looks looks like a bomb or something you know sure. um so i actually I, I FedEx my my teapot out there, so it would. And I have I have multiple backups, by the way. Um, so I have the teapot shipped out by FedEx, arriving there on time. I get to the house, which is Walter Scott's house, and it's stunning. Okay, I, I, I told you he's a billionaire, um, and no exaggeration. And the house was just, it was like. Architectural Digest. They're like turning the pages of Architectural Digest. Every room a picture. And there's beautiful um, Murano glass chandeliers. And then they've got this this curved staircase with a one banister that's carved out of a single piece of wood. That's like, you know, from Africa. I forget the name of the wood. And then when you get downstairs where they have the party, my performance space, um, the floor is one giant wall-to-wall white carpet like a plush white carpet yeah and they said to me um please just don't make any mess on the carpet and i said well i'm gonna be doing a drink trick and i'll be pouring 
different types of wines. I could be pouring port, or I could be pouring some single malt scotches, or I could be pouring, could be, yeah. you know, all different types of drinks. If there's something that spills, we could just like sop it up or something, right? He said, no, no. If there is any damage, this carpet is, I don't forget the number, how much it costs, but it was a very expensive wall-to-wall carpet. If you get any any uh, of your liquids on there, you will be responsible for either replacing or having it cleaned. Yeah. I thought to myself, wait a minute. It's not worth it for me to to do the replace trick. their carpet yeah. by having to perform one single trick that could potentially spill. Because I've spilled drinks before. Yeah. Um, you never know when you're dealing with the public, right? Sure. So, so I made it an executive decision that I will forfeit my best trick, which is any drink called for, for the sake of not having to pay for any sort of damage that might come as collateral afterwards. Um, so that was a tough executive decision, sure. as you can imagine. The show went great. Um, before the show, they wanted to show me what was in the next room. And Walter Scott happens to be a, a keen student of Western expansionism. Um, really? Lewis and Clark mm-hmm. and and um, the uh, the gold uh, gold uh, panning, you know, movement and going out to the California to, was it, was it 69, 18? 49. 49, sorry, 49, 1849. So he, he was clearly, you know, a student of history. Sure. And he said, I have something special to show you. It's in this climate controlled glass case um, can you guess what this is I'm looking at it and it's a handwritten document As I, I'm looking at it I really don't know what it is sir and he says this is the original Louisiana purchase I was, that's what I was going to guess he has guess. the original Louisiana purchase document in his basement in this beautiful museum quality display case and other memorabilia from Lewis and Clark's actual journey and I said, this is amazing. Why is this not in the, the Smithsonian yeah, or, the Smithsonian the or in, in the archives? And he said, it's, it's because at the time that this was released, the information being disseminated was important, but the actual physical document didn't have any value. So Thomas Jefferson, and I, I was looking at the document written in Thomas Jefferson's hand, mm-hmm. right? This close. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Uh, after he wrote it, it was then released to local newspapers, and the newspapers printed up and, and then disseminated that into their various regions. And uh, that was the that was the importance of the the document. The message was yeah. important, but the physical paper was somehow acquired by a local businessman, and then that had been passed on from businessman to businessman as either uh, inheritances or perhaps purchases along the way. And then Walter Scott acquired it somehow from maybe a, a previous collector. And he has it on display at his house. So that's the type of audience I'm dealing with. You know, people who have control over something quite extraordinary. Yeah. You know, and when you walk into a show like that, you think, I better be good. You know, yeah. I've got to. I've got to be good. You have to deliver. You have to deliver, and um, and it was it was a great night. It was a great show. Yeah. So after the show's over, this there's a continuation to this story. <laughs> it started to snow. It was in December, and it was pretty rare. But there was a, a huge blizzard that came through. It didn't hit Omaha, but it was hitting the Midwest, um, a little closer to the East Coast. Chicago was really hitting, getting hit bad. Uh, New York was so bad that the airports were all closed. 
and I thought I gotta get back I gotta get out of here because I, otherwise I'll be stranded in Omaha for you know for a week so I said to my travel agent where can I be rerouted she said we can send you to Philadelphia straight flight there's still the airport's still open mm-hmm. um, why don't you uh, fly to Philadelphia and then you can take a train home you know or a bus to get back home it's not that bad so having no other alternative that's what I did and I get to Philadelphia and as I get there they had shut down the airport right after I arrived it was getting really bad yeah I moved then from the airport in Philadelphia to the train station Uh, I was able to get through like we trudged through the snow in a a taxi but it was it was just an awful uh, ride and when we finally get to the train station all the trains were shut down because the tracks were covered in snow and I have pride, but I didn't have that much pride. So I thought, you know, I'm getting really tired. I've been on the road for a while. I'm just going to crash right here on this, this wooden bench in the train station in downtown Philadelphia. Yeah. Not a great area of town. Very sketchy. And I thought, I'll loop my hand through my bag because I had, like, all my magic equipment with me. So I had, you know, kind of a soft-handled uh, luggage. So I looped my hand through the, the handle of the bag and then laid down, uh, put down something as a cushion, and I fell asleep on the bench. Yeah. Next morning, about 5 or 6 in the morning, I get woke, awoken by a police officer from Philadelphia with a billy club, no exaggeration, like a wooden billy club. And he's wrapping his billy club against the wooden bench saying, wake up, sonny boy, wake up. And I'm thinking to myself, this is show business. (laughs) This is show business. The night before I was with the richest man in the world. Yeah. And now I'm a vagrant being woken up by a police officer, the bench in Philadelphia, as if I was homeless. Yeah. And, you know, that's the, that's... A perfect picture of what you go through yeah. in showbiz. It runs the gamut. That's great. That's a that's like a, a, a truly amazing story. Thank you. It's all true. And then I took the train back the next the next morning when they cleared off the tracks. That's good. Got home safe. Yep. Yep. Uh, I heard you mentioning earlier to Evan that your daughter is into magic. Yeah, well, here's the thing. So I've got two kids, a 17-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter. And uh, my daughter and I, my son learned a couple of tricks, but now he's more interested in in sports. He's a, he's a very serious soccer player. Um, he actually got invited to play in a Bundesliga team in Austria and um, flew out to Austria and stayed there for uh, the summer last summer to play with the pro team. And they, they offered him a spot, and he said, no, I want to go back to America and finish my high school first. But my daughter, um, so he, he doesn't do much magic, but my daughter is a showman. Like, we come from a family that has show business in our blood. My grandmother was a, um, a professional pianist and dancer mm-hmm. and singer, and she used to work up and down the eastern seaboard performing in actual vaudeville houses. So up until her dying day, she was still playing music that she's composed herself, and she was always a great entertainer. Um, my daughter is a dancer and a... Um, a pianist mm. and she's just funny she's like she's like a, a cut up you know she's one of those kids that just makes you laugh and she's got a good sense of humor good timing so I've taught her some magic and she's 
gotten pretty good. She has a couple of, of card card moves that are good and some card routines that are SW shift. Yeah, SW, of course. Yeah, she, <laughs> you know, she's able to do you know the Ernest Eric work is, is quite incredible. Great, great. That one handed bottom palm is a. Uh, Teach that to your kids. And our hands are so small. <laughs> exactly, uh, <laughs> but she um, she actually learned with me mm-hmm. a two person mentalism act. Wow! Which we are both rusty on, but when we were doing it, when she was in preschool and in early elementary school, it was a really tight act. We fooled a lot of people that. Um, I showed it to Darren Brown. He thought it was great, um, and it's it's a uh, a drawing duplication. And the way that the concert or the uh, the way it looks to the audience is, I have my daughter come in, and she does this with me on Father's Day. So yeah. she'll come in the Father's Day weekend. That was her gift to me. Oh, that's. It great. was just such a great bonding experience, right? For, you know, with your child, to have that shared experience, and she's so comfortable in front of an audience. She was just a, a second. It was just second nature for her. Wow, she's a natural. So, so her name is June. So I said, June, would you go off into the corner? Here's a box of Crayola crayons. Please don't bother me. We're doing the show here. Just draw some pictures and have some fun. So she's like, but Papa, I'm like, June, we're in the middle of the show. Please just draw some pictures. Then and she's sitting over there in the corner. Then I have a random person picked from the audience. I have him come up. And then at some point I give him a uh, pad. Uh, no gimmicks. There's no gimmicks involved. There's no, you know, uh, iPad. What do you call it? Um, uh, you know, digital reading or anything like this. Sure. Um, it's all done legitimately. Yeah. And so he draws any picture he wants. But I said, just draw something that a kid would recognize. Like any something that, like my daughter, my daughter would know what it is. Yeah. So he draws a picture. Let's say it's a rocket ship. Okay. And I say, hey June, you're over there drawing pictures. Just pick one of your photo, your drawings, and just bring it over here. And you, sir, would you come to the middle of the room? Now, she's been over there drawing pictures, which is something that kids should be doing, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's natural for someone of that age to be doing that activity. So it was so perfect. And I said, okay, on the count of three, I'd like you to both to turn your drawings around. I had nothing to do with this. One, two, three. They turn it around, and they both have drawn a rocket ship. Wow. And so we had a great code act that was natural. It was deceptive and it was pretty um, broad reaching comprehensive in that we June and I worked out what are things that most people would assume a kid knows how to draw right yeah so that's that's actually a pretty advanced level of thinking yeah. for, a, for a small kid thinking, absolutely and we, so we worked this out together as it was like a father-daughter project like what what what, what do you think a kid would, would, would draw a sun okay great that would be one of our objects what else is there uh, a moon okay great we got the sun we got the moon great terrific what's, what's another one um, a uh, stick figure okay let's do a stick figure uh, a rainbow we got a rainbow what else a dinosaur okay good a rocket ship and we went down the line so we had a list of about maybe a hundred different drawings that we both knew our, our code for yeah and she was really good and she's better at it than I am because like you know the plasticity of a child's brain is, uh-huh. is much you know more uh, flexible than than uh, an old man like me so <laughs> so so there were times when we, we would go to parties mm-hmm. and people would say hey can you show us something and I was like well I'm not gonna show you anything I'm gonna let my daughter take over this time June would you go over the corner and draw some pictures and then we would do the act but there were times where I forgot I would forget the 
the cues. Yeah. And she remembered them all, and she'd be like feeding them back to me, and I'm like, I'm so sorry, I just dropped the ball here. Oh, but but funny. you know, little kids' memory is so much better than than yeah. the grown adult most of the time. So that was that was a lot of fun. That's yeah, amazing. We, yeah, we've got a great bonding bonding with that. How do you think? Uh, I mean, you know, as the father of someone who will be a lady in magic, what are your thoughts on that? She's not going to be a lady in magic. Okay. Because her interests lie in um, dance. Okay. She's a, she's a dedicated dancer. She wants to become a professional. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, magic. No, I mean, she likes magic. Yeah. Both of my kids are pretty jaded by this point because I practice at home. Sure. And they've seen, you know, they know all my moves. So, you know, I do a, a pretty tight, really clean classic pass. Um, I learned it from... Uh, they can hear it in the other room. Yeah, very, very funny. Yeah. <laughs> they... they um, they say, wait a minute. My, my son says, what is that thing you just did? I was like, I didn't do anything. He's like, no, you, you, I could see some, some tension. And I was like, well, I just riffled the cards. He goes, no, 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 there is some tension. And so he really... He's very astute. Yeah. They yeah. really... They've seen it enough now that they're like, okay. They don't know what a pass is, but he knows that there's some sort of activity that happened. Yeah. And he says, I hate that. I hate when you do that. Um, so long story short... Uh, both kids are probably not going to become magicians, but okay. they've become very good sounding boards for me. Sure. So when I'm working on new material, if it fools them or if it um, if it flies by them, if they don't recognize that something happened, then I know that I've got something which is potentially usable. Yeah. So, for example, I'm working on a blindfolded card stab routine mm-hmm. a la Max Malini. Yeah. And um, so I performed it for my daughter. She liked it. I performed it for my son. He liked it. And then he said, wait a minute, what about this? And he called out one little moment. And then I tweaked that and made it better, and then it fooled him. I showed the routine then. I was in Chicago recently doing the show at the Waldorf Astoria Chicago. Yeah. Because I'm going to be taking – after this hotel shuts down, um, it was kind of inside baseball, but I'll be taking the show to other Waldorf Astoria properties around the country. Oh, wow. They have other Waldorf Astoria hotel resorts, and I'll be moving the show to others coming up very soon this year, starting this year. Um and uh, when I was in Chicago, I showed the show. I showed this trick, the blindfolded card stab, to Simon Aronson and his wife Ginny when I went over to their house. Lovely people and great people. Um, and I showed it to Mergle Funsky also, who got a chance to see it. Um, and Simon said, "That's great." And he had some pointers. He had some things. I wish he said, "I wish you could do this. I wish you could do that to, to tweak it even more," because he remember he's a magician who's thinking from a construction point of view. Yeah, you know, it, what I currently had at that moment was tight, but it wasn't as tight as it could be, and it would certainly fool my children, which is already getting up there, but it wouldn't fool a, a true expert or a true master like Simon. Sure. And I think that, you know, one of the goals is try to make your magic as baffling as it possibly can be, whether it's seen by a magician or a layman. Mm-hmm. The Chamber Magic Show has magic in it that a magician will be able to see through certain areas, certain certain things. But like I said, you know, Teller came here and he told me that he was fooled by half half of what he saw. So there are some things that are also magician fools, but that's never sure. my intent. I, of course I not. I don't think that any, again, I don't work magic conventions uh, I don't work ma- the magic lecture circuits, but you know, because of that, I don't have to come up with magic or material that is intended for the sole purpose of fooling magicians. Yeah. 
um, when magicians come here, I'm hoping that what they walk away with is the um, the memory that you can do material and you can cloak it in such a way that a lay audience will remember you as being the best magician they've ever seen. Yeah. Right? So whether you are doing the best magic that's ever been created is not it at all. It's not the question. It's will people remember you as being the best magician they've ever seen? Right? And that's what I think you try to create is just a, a memory of something because the, the only thing that people can walk away with is their interpretation of the experience that they had, right? Um, you know, I remember when I was in high school, this kind of blew my mind. Uh, it's nothing pr- very profound, but as a high school student, it kind of was. My, my very close friend at the time, a guy named Eric Stangle, who's ended up becoming the executive director, executive producer of the David Letterman show, um, Eric Stangle said, you know, what I say is not necessarily what I mean to say. And then what you hear me say is not, not necessarily, necessarily what, I said. what I said. And then what you think you heard me say is also quite different from my original intent. Uh-huh. So there's so much separation of, of that communication chain, right? That, in fact, it's incredible that any messages get to people at all. Yeah. Right? So so all you can try to do is create this memory of an experience. Mm-hmm. And then people are going to color that and interpret it and take away you know whatever they choose to or whatever they whatever rubs them the right way. Yeah. Um and so you can only throw out so much spaghetti on the wall and hope that it sticks, right? Sure. But but if you put if you put the right types of spaghetti out there, with the right types of linguine <laughs> or fettuccine, right, then they're gonna actually experience something with nice texture. Yeah. You know, so fusilli. Fusilli. Also helps if the pasta is handmade. Yes, uh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> you know, I got really spoiled. My I, one of my assistants. I told you, um, I've got three three girls who work with me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Trish, her name is Pat- uh, Patricia Santomaso. She's just ph- phenomenal. She's, you know, all the women who work with me are actors or actresses, and they. Um, they are voiceover experts. They're singers. They're just really good presenters. So, I feel so comfortable working with them. Um, Trish has um, also become quite a cook, a chef, and she is half Italian with a name like Santomaso, right? And she makes every year for Christmas for me a handmade. My mouth just started watering. Yeah, she makes a a homemade lasagna. Ugh. with homemade pasta and she makes it at her home and when she brings it in here it is the most sublime uh. gift because it's I, I sometimes end my show early just like so i could run in the back and start eating it i'm like okay guys thanks very much i'm signing off you know i have to go back here and it seems like i have some special and you know, important meeting i'm going back out there and picking out on lasagna because uh, it's so good it's just yeah. a really great chef with this great really amazing recipes and and also that uh, homemade pasta you just can't beat oh yeah um, what else did you have on your list we actually have covered most of the things um on the list, if not all of the things on the list. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, let's see. We've been going for a little over three hours. Holy crap. Yeah. That's insane. It's pretty good, right? Well, I remember you did something with um, with Aussie and with Adam Rubin, and it was it was some immensely long podcast. So the, the episode, so the actual recording length was only about two hours and 40 minutes. 
Okay. But near the end of the episode, we got into this funny thing because Adam was, uh, he's trained in improvisation at Second sure. City and Annoyance sure. Theater in Chicago. And so we start. we were talking about improv and the sense of discovery. Mm-hmm. And during the episode, we came up with this idea of putting in extra time at the end so that when the audience saw the time code, they didn't know how long the episode actually was and when it would really end. I see. Uh, so it, it looks like it's six hours long, but it's really only about a little less than three. Oh, that's pretty hilarious. Yeah. You know, Adam has been a great friend of mine. Um, he's supported me all along. You know, I did I did a Carnegie Hall run, you know, a Carnegie Hall show. I don't know if you know about that. I'm the first magician in 75 years to perform solo in Carnegie Hall, which is uh, incredible. Yeah, it was it was really something else. And and Adam was great. He supported me at that. And when I decided to do a TV show, which is uh, called Lost Magic Decoded, um, I hired Adam as one of my consultants. It was him and Mark Levy, and um, we also got Brad Henderson involved because Brad's friends with uh, with Adam. And um, and uh, Adam was just so great. He is just a, a storehouse or stockpile of, of of crazy ideas that, in his mind, will absolutely work. Yeah. And then you try them and say, okay, well, I don't know how you came up with that, but let's give it a try. And and sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But but sometimes it's my limitations that didn't make it work. But mm-hmm. his idea is solid, and it's it's. Valid and viable, given the right performer. Yeah, he's easily one of the smartest people I've ever Absolutely. met. Absolutely, and yeah. and um, you know, I I think the world of him, and I know that he and Ossie gave me a call out on that uh, that episode. They said hi, Steve, which was kind of funny because when you're listening to it and suddenly your name pops up, uh, it's, it's, it was very rewarding. Um, but yeah, I I feel really lucky, and I get it. I have a lot of close friends in magic. Um, I don't spend enough time with my magician friends yeah because i'm working on the weekends and yeah. like when there's magic conventions you know it's it's for me to say i'm going to give up uh you know a hundred thousand dollars to go to a magic convention because that's what i'm making in a weekend yeah like why would you do that yeah. unless there was a really good reason to go there to hang out with your friends sure why not i mean that's that's a valid excuse but you know i'm still in the mode where i have to get my kids through college and i'm thinking I have a very solid business right now. I'm not going to just drop it and have some fun for the sake of having fun. Sure. So magic conventions typically overlap with my show's schedule. So unfortunately, I have to I pared back from going to conventions. Yeah. yeah. Is it frustrating at all that you don't get to, that you love the kind of the brotherhood of magic, but you don't get to actively participate? It really in it does. It really is. It, it pains me. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I love... I'm so dedicated to magic. I mean, this is my, it's, it's my, I live, breathe, and, and sleep magic. Um, so when you get to a certain level, obviously, you want to surround yourself by people who understand you, who understand that. And, you know, the people who you've interviewed on your podcast are people who I, some of them I've never met before, but I feel immediate kinship with mm-hmm. by saying, wow, that's the level of dedication I have. I, 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 um, I feel great empathy towards you. Yeah. You know, we have a similar uh, worldview, and and I would just wish I could spend more time with people like that. And there's some sensational magicians here in New York. I just never get a chance to see them. I, I love hanging out with Doug McKenzie. I can't see him often enough, but I don't see him very much at all because he's out working in in Spain or wherever he happens to be, and I'm doing my shows here, and and our schedules are just you know not overlapping. Yeah. Um. So. 
most of the time I like to invite magicians in here to the show and then we hang out at the bar downstairs afterwards. Mm-hmm. There's a bar called the Bull and Bear and that's where um, Vernon used to hang out with Charlie Miller. Oh, uh, wow. With, yeah, with, uh, it's closed down, unfortunately, at this hour of the night. Um, but that's where he hung out with, with Doc Daly and with S. Leo Horowitz and Malini would show up. Um, they, they used to have their annual magician's dinner at the Bull and Bear in the wow. p- back private room there um, behind the bar. There's like this closed off area. And I brought many magicians to that room. I brought... Um, uh, I brought Roberto Joby there, and he was excited to, to visit uh, that spot. I brought um, Christian Engblom and Woody Aragon and Patrick Page and Jeffrey Bride yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> uh, Eugene Berger, and the list goes on and on. Uh, Dennis, Dennis Bear. It's, I mean, it's, it's a it's a really cool old school bar. Yeah. And it looks like it should. It's, yeah. it's like a, it's a steakhouse in the back and a bar in the front, and it's like an old gentleman's bar. Um, but it's it's pretty awesome. And in this hotel, so while we're talking about it, I've been in some other areas that have magical historic significance. I went to. Um, I have a collection of memorabilia that has to do with the Waldorf Astoria and magic, mm-hmm. and um, just things that I picked up along the way. And I have one booklet from the very first United Nations. Uh, General Assembly Gala Dinner, which was held here at the Waldorf Astoria, because the United Nations is, is like a few blocks away from here. Yeah. And um, on the bill was Cardini. Wow. Okay. And so I've got this menu and, and a booklet and uh, you know a, a schedule of what's happening at the at this event and on the list says Cardini, Master of Deception. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And then in the same uh, booklet, I happen to have Cardini's invitation to that event. Yeah. So I look at the at the program and I see where is he performing in the Waldorf Astoria? Oh, he's going to be in the Jade Room. So that room still exists. I went down there. And in fact, I took Levent. You know the magician Levent mm-hmm. from Atlanta? He's just one of the all-time great magicians. Um, and he's a, a close friend. Levent and I walked down there and we, we doped out where Cardini must have stood yeah. in order to perform in that space. So you know, you look and you say, okay, where did he stand based on uh, uh, where the orchestra must have been set up? Yeah. And we say, okay, he had to be standing right here. There's probably a raised platform and lighting and sound behind him, banquet tables in front. This is where Cardini performed. And so that's pretty amazing yeah. to know this is where he stood. Um, in 19... 70, is either 76 or 78? I think it's 1978. The SAM, Society of American Magicians, held their uh, annual conference at the Waldorf Astoria. And there's a great picture that I think was taken by Irving Desfor um, of Di Vernon on stage giving a lecture here in, in the ballroom. And that's the same ballroom that my, my daughter practices her dancing on in that same stage. Yeah. Um, and another great picture of Copperfield and Doug Henning. Um, one of them was giving an award to the other. I can't remember who was giving the award to who. Mm-hmm. But that's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. And that's this hotel has so much magic history. And um, I feel really fortunate that, uh, that I could be part of it. Yeah. I think it's cool that you're collecting all that stuff. You're, you're like really... I, it's refreshing to me to see your passion for it. You know, I, I, I like that a lot. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I've, I've become really passionate about Malini. Yeah. And um, I have, uh, as I showed you, I showed you that, that signed, uh, that card, right? The yeah. playing card from Malini's deck. Um, but I have some 
autographed in fountain pen, some autographed um, brochures that he uh, used as promotional items. This mm-hmm. is like basically his website. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you open up this little booklet and it has like page upon page of, of letters from significant people like President Harding or you know the presidents of the United States, uh, the vice president of the United States, the uh, the general of the United States, sure. all these great um, figures endorsing him in his little booklet like the way we have it on a website these days. But then at the bottom of each page, it would say where they're writing from. So it says, you know, President uh, of the United States, and then it would say, uh, addressed to Max Malini, care of Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Oh, wow. And I said to myself, this is the only person in the world that this really truly means anything to is me. Yeah. Because I am trying to carry on Malini's legacy in exactly the same building where he was his trade mm-hmm. you know so I have a whole bunch of other Malini memorabilia so I have some some uh, never before seen illustrations of him hand-drawn pictures um, and some other really uh, a, a painting of him that he hand uh, autographed so it's, it's really nice and I just it's, sometimes it's fun to have a um, a collection that you that a, a goal of, of creating a collection that you know no one else has oper- has uh, access to yeah and so it becomes like what is it uh, it becomes like your your holy grail uh-huh. you're always hunting for the next thing that will c- create your complete collection and with Malini like there's not that much out there like even you know, there's there may be a poster or two there may be you know a postcard or two sure but there's not that much so when something comes up at auction I'm always very excited to see it and even if I have a double of it um, I might sometimes try to get that now this tells it reminds me of a funny story Ken Klosterman um, has one of the greatest collections of magic memorabilia in the world and it's in his house in, in Ohio um, it's actually underground in his house in Ohio you have to go down an elevator shaft and you end up in this rickety uh, walk through this 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 pathway and he opens up a safe and you go into this museum which he has built underneath his house mm-hmm. and um, anyway he had an auction of some of his items um, he had doubles and triples of things. He was trying to get rid of a few things just to make some dollars. And one of the items that was for auction was that little Malini booklet that I just told you about. Yeah. And I thought, I've got to have that. No one else in the world needs this more than I do. So I started bidding and bidding and bidding. And someone else is bidding against me with very deep pockets. I'm thinking, ah, oh, man, it must be must be Copperfield because I know he wants he wants this kind of thing for his museum but I said I don't care how much he's bidding for this I must have this and it kept on going higher and higher and higher until it was like a it was like a stupid amount <laughs> I don't remember what it was but it was just stupid money <laughs> and then I'm thinking why am I even doing this it's just I know I want this yeah. so badly because it means something and so I just didn't stop and eventually he pulled out and I won yeah and Ken Klosterman, next time I saw him, said, thank you so much. You are one of our biggest supporters. I'm so delighted. And then I went to, um, I got invited by David to his museum in Las Vegas. And David's been such a great supporter of my show. And, and personally, he's answered questions that no one else could answer but him mm-hmm. because of his level of, of, um, of understanding, business savvy, and his success level. 
And I was at his, his museum, and Chris Kenner gives me a tour, uh, which lasted, I think it was one of the longest tours they've ever given anybody. Um, it was me and Tim Moore. You know Tim? I don't know Tim. Were you at the Magi Fest? This year? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, did you meet a guy named Tim? He's a dentist. He has a... He he co create he co produces the Magi Fest with Josh J and, and, and no uh, I didn't no I, I didn't meet him okay well anyway he's he's a really great guy he and I both were at the museum tour at the same time and we both are interested in different areas of magic so Chris Kenner and and Copperfield were accommodating to both of our wishes mm-hmm. and gave us I mean it was like a four hour maybe five hour tour we we finished so late at night and and they stuck it out for us the whole time it was just great and while we're looking at the Molini memorabilia that Copperfield has I say wait a minute you have the same booklet that I just won in the auction from Klosterman and he looks at it and he goes oh yeah that was a that was a duplicate that uh, that Ken sent to me I was like he sent it to you he said yeah he sent it to me just you know as a, as a gift, and I was like, I said, I I'm spending my inheritance money. On this this I don't know. He sent it to you as a gift, he, and he says, Yeah, that's right. I said, Okay, well, I give up. You know, it must have been he just wanted to to make you know make 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 nice. But then I went back to Ken Klosterman's place another time to visit with my with my buddy Mark Levy, and I said, Hey, have you got any other Molini memorabilia? And he pulls out a third one of the same book. <laughs> I'm like, Ay, ay, ay. You know, I, for me, this is like you know super special. I realized that there are at least three of them out there. Yeah. So that for me was kind of a hilarious story. That's but, pretty funny. But I don't really care. Actually, I have a second one myself now too. Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. And, and the, the second one I have is actually signed by Malini. Oh yeah. Fountain pen. Is it in better condition? Better condition like, than all wow. than everyone's. I've got the best one. I mean, there's there's no question. And and again, when you have a collection mm-hmm. of, I, I don't know if you're interested in collecting magic. I'm not much of a collector, but yeah. I think you have to collect what you love. Yes. And if you collect things that are just for the sake of, of hoarding, it's a mistake because then that's a it's very slippery slope. Yeah. You never you're never any end to it. So, since I love Malini. And there's a few other areas that I'm interested in because I did the bullet catch. I don't know if you saw my TV show where I did the bullet catch. I've become interested in Chung Ling Su. I ended up in the hospital myself because of the bullet catch. Oh yes, I do remember that. Yeah, the glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. a big, uh, big mistake. I'll never, never do that again. <laughs> um, but that was a, another whole story. Yeah. Anyhow, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I collect, I collect a few, a few, uh, you know, items here and there of different, different guys. But Molini for me is is the most interesting, you know. So, so um, anyway, I forgot where I was going with that story, but I think that you have to, you know, you collect what you love, and oh yeah, I remember now. So, so if you can find something you know that was actually held by. A performer that you admire that has incredible sentimental value right yeah so when I have a, a booklet that has Molini's actual handwriting on it I know that he held this that was actually something that he took the time to autograph and it's you know beautiful penmanship as he got older it got more sloppy but that happens to all of us True. but this must have been in an earlier part of his life where he had very you know, handsome penmanship as a lost art and uh, I know this has extra special value to me because of that. Now, Tim Moore has another interesting way of collecting. He find he likes to find photographs of a, an admired performer. Okay, so let's say like the great Lafayette or whoever it happens to be. And, um, you know, Charles Carter or if it mm-hmm. happens, you know, Thurston. Or, and he'll find then the prop that was being held in the photograph by that performer. And collect that as well. So that's 
even more provenance, right? To prove sure. that yes, this was actually held by, uh, you know, Thurston or Houdini or whoever it happens to be, because you see it with your own eyes. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's that's great. And I like I'm not a big collector. I uh, when I got into magic, I was more of a hoarder, and now I've, I've I haven't bought anything in a long time. Actually, it's not true. I just bought Ben Earl's new book, but um, I don't. What is his new book? Uh, it's a book on improvisational card control, basically. Okay. Uh, it's pretty good. He's super into movement and body language. And sure, kind sure. Of, kind of taking the the pit hardling thing, which is really just the Ascania thing of like basically the method happening before the trick starts. Right, right. Um, I like I like what Pitt writes in one of his books about creating challenges. Mm-hmm. And allowing the audience to apparently challenge you, and then you're—it's kind of like the ham sandwich in uh, in Henning Nelms saying, like the audience says, "Oh, I'm hungry," and then you produce a ham sandwich. Yeah, and that right? essay at the beginning. Yeah. Right, right. But but if you just produce a ham sandwich, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Because it's so it's a non sequitur. Yes. But imagine if if not not producing a ham sandwich, but if your if your audience challenged you because they think that it's their inspiration. Yeah. To create a moment, yeah. and then you plan that and entirely set it up, and it appears that you can resolve or fulfill their challenge. Yeah. Then you come up out on top. You, you certainly come out on top. That's real magic. It, it really is, and you know I think that um, that's not something that that many people incorporate in their work. I don't really incorporate it too much, but there are some times in this show where I I, I throw out some some lines, you know, some fishy lines. And if people tug on them then I can I can, you know, go a little further. Yeah. Um oh shoot. There was one oh. and one more thing and I forgot what it was gonna be. Well it is very late. Yes. Uh talking about collecting. Recording. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We usually end with uh, the guests saying how the hardest time they were ever fooled, telling that story, or or a time they were fooled. Okay. Um, yeah, I've got a couple of stories, but the best one yeah. um, is when I saw the Hooker Rising cards, and I flew out from New York to Los Angeles to see John Gon perform the Hooker Rising cards, and. Um, it was really something special. Yeah. Because it was a room full of very smart magicians in the audience, and they had very specific instructions. Steinmeier came out and talked about it first. He said, you may not, or maybe it was Caveney, I forget who it was, but one of those two came out and, and admonished us. You may not stand up. You may not move from your chair. You're sitting in assigned seats for a specific reason, and whoever stands up will automatically end the audience, end the show for the rest of the audience. Yeah. So if you start to stand up and peek and look over here to the left or to the right to see if you can catch something, that will shut down the show, and you will be the source of you know ire from the rest of the entire group because they all paid money to be there too. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of social pressure now. To just be, to be you good. know, a, a good boy sitting in your <laughs> in your chair with your feet on the floor and uh, and face front, and it was 
just extraordinary because I had read about it in Greater Magic when I was a young magician growing up. Yeah. And it seems impossible. There's no way that there's going to be a bare head floating underneath a dome and and named cards rising and then floating in the air underneath a bell dome. And, and, and all of this was happening for real. And I thought, this is just, I'm living in a dream. This, this really, I, I couldn't understand how it was happening. And at one point, John Gons, and this is the part that fooled me the most, is John Gons says, okay, now uh, we've done it with my deck. I'd like to borrow a deck from someone in the audience. So I volunteered. And there were several magicians, but I kind of knew that he was going to do this. I had a deck at the ready. So as soon as he said, I need a deck from the audience, I was like... <laughs> Bolted my hand up in the air. I was like, you know, a little kid at a birthday party, you know, saying like, pick me, pick me. But I didn't say that. I just yeah. kind of glared at him in the eyes. And and we know each other, but we didn't know each other that well at the time. But yeah. but he, he knew I, who I was. And he said, okay, Steve. So he takes my deck and he, um, he says, okay, before I take it, I want you to take any card that you like yeah. in the middle of your own deck, reverse it, and put it back in that same spot. And then remember the card on either side of your reverse card. Okay? Okay. So then he takes my deck, and I, I think I kept the box. And there's so many he, sure. there's so many multiple methods involved. So I don't remember exactly what happened here, but he took my deck and he put it into a, uh, a houlette. The houlette, I can't remember if it was up on top of a balanced book or something like that. But anyway, it was on the table. And then he starts talking to the cards, saying, please rise. And this reversed card rises up from the deck. So the whole deck is facing faces forward. Yeah. But a reverse card rises up. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty good gimmick or whatever you've got going there. Yeah. But then he turns the whole thing around, and it was my card that I had turned over, which I remember was the Five of Spades, which is my favorite card. Yeah. Um, that was my first Svengali deck it was the five of spades that's my favorite card so anyway the five of spades is sticking up and then he takes the deck out and he hands it to me while the card is still protruding and I look at the card on either side and sure enough it's those same two cards meaning it wasn't like a duplicate that had been fed in it was mm-hmm. you know it's just like multiple methods that are intended to purposely throw off any potential one uh, theory that you may have yeah and so by the nature of that card being reversed, you knew that it was exactly the card. Yeah. And so that you know that it was between those two. In other words, it rose from that exact position. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and I took the deck back, took it home. And there's a thing I can't really talk about on, on your podcast. Sure. But I've confirmed this with Bill Kalush because I think that Kalush has a deck that Jay Marshall had also been volunteered for the hooker rising cards way back when like this is like when maybe john mulholland was performing it um and both of our decks have a similar uh, alteration sure that gives a small clue to how it might have been done yeah and i i have a better idea now of how it might have been done but i still am completely clueless and it was really one of the most amazing magical experiences and and intended to fool magicians but it certainly fooled me yeah it was awesome that's amazing yeah it was great it really was great you know it's funny uh i interviewed adam last night and i asked him and he said the hooker rising card oh really okay yeah great yeah so that's fun well thank you so much this was amazing thank you for having me to the show it was phenomenal thank you it was a wonderful experience thank you uh i will have 
most definitely have to come back and see it when it's at the New York Palace. The New York Palace. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, one block away. And that, that was really the beauty of this all is that, you know, you think about the picture. That yeah. you're, you're, you're creating a picture in people's minds and they're thinking, okay, there's a magic show in Midtown. Now, granted, there are other magic shows in New York and, you know, people have, have seen that this pattern works and have tried to emulate it. Um, but I kind of have, this is my turf, right? Yeah. You know, a magic show in an upscale hotel in Midtown, that's me. <laughs> and so I didn't have to change to another location. I'm moving to a, a, a you know, place that's a block away. So, you know, people are coming, they're used to coming to this area anyway. It's just one little you know, hopping a skip across the across Park Avenue, and you're yeah, right there. That's great. Yep. Well, thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts, so shoot me an email at podcast at artofmagic.com or send me a message on the Magical Thinking Podcast Facebook page. If you enjoyed this episode, please support the show by sharing it on social media and letting others know why you loved it. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers.